Airline Pilot Guy episode 366. You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door with your host, Captain Jeff, happily at the controls. Today's show is recorded on the 16th of March, 2019. In today's episode, the Boeing 737 MAX series is grounded after a second fatal crash in five months. And United Airlines fires 35 people for abusing their travel benefits. More news, your feedback, and in today's Plane Tales, the short life of Nirja Bana. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 366 is ready for pushback. Thanks, Radio Roger, for that great intro. And I'm Captain Jeff, a captain for a major legacy airline. I call it Acme. It's not a real airline. It's a virtual airline. I really do work for a real airline, though, just in case you're wondering. And uh, we're here to talk about aviation news and answer your feedback and helping me to do that from her Lakeside College. Lakeside Studio in South Carolina, a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Folks, he's trying to send me back to school. Clearly, I have not learned enough to be a member of this show yet, but I will do my best today. So it's good to see you, Captain Jeff. And um, hey, I'm here on time and rested and really looking forward to today's show. So Excellent. And you were in school recently, weren't you? Yeah, kind of. Sort of? Okay. Sort of. Well, also here from across the pond in his studio in the English countryside, a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Well, hi there, Jeff, and hi, Steph. It's not often I say this, but I'm drugged up to the eyeballs. Well, he says that to us all the time, actually, in private. So it's going to be a great show, I think. Yeah, it's, that's a wonderful combination. Uh. <laughs> all right. And uh, we're thinking that Dana may join us today. Um, he's probably in peaceful slumber at this point because he uh, just got back from Hawaii uh, on an uh, all-nighter, a red-eye, and uh, believe that uh, he, he got in a couple of hours ago. So we're probably going to see him pulp in at some point during the show. But uh, for now, we're going to kind of get caught up with everyone here in the uh, present uh, crew room. And uh, let's start with um, Dr. Steph. Yeah. Hey, guys. Um, When was the last time we talked? I don't even remember. Uh, It was like last Wednesday or Thursday, right? Gotcha. Okay. Well, yeah, it's been, um, gosh, I've just had a busy More than a week couple ago. of weeks. I feel like, um, perhaps I finally got a little bit, uh, caught back up after being in Tokyo for just over a week. Um, 
or being tra traveling for just over a week. I wasn't in Tokyo for quite that long. Um, but that was a couple weeks ago now. And uh, yeah, I'm finally back to feeling like I'm caught up, feeling like I'm rested, um, getting back to, to just normal life stuff and uh, lovely seven hours of sleep last night. And I'm here on time because I'm not running in late from being at work later than, than planned. So um, yeah, all is good. And it is finally, we've had this uh, very um, interesting weather pattern here in the South for the past, oh, I don't know, eight months where every weekend it rains. So during the week, kind of okay. Friday rolls along, rain, Saturday, rain, Sunday, rain. Kind of just makes it hard to get outside and do things or enjoy, uh, you know, just being outside and having days off and not having to be at work. But if you notice behind me, if you're watching the video, that is in fact sunshine coming through the window. I was going to so say, it's not raining now, is it? It is not raining now. Good. It is... Uh, I think the wind is supposed to die down even more later on this afternoon. It's not going to be as warm as it has been the past couple of days, but that's okay. I'll take sunshine and 60 degrees. That sounds wonderful to me and hopefully get to do a little bit of flying tomorrow afternoon too. Ooh. So woohoo. Nice. Yep. Okay. Flying. Wow. Yeah, I know. That's going to be so exciting. I'm very excited. It's been a while. <laughs> it's been a minute. <laughs> so as I kind of alluded to um, just a, few moments ago, uh, you had to go through some kind of professional training or something. Oh like that yeah, week. that was um, recurrent. Um, uh, actually my, believe it or not, my job only requires me to have basic life support training. Um, cause I work in an outpatient facility, um, without a lot of resources, um, readily at hand other than basic stuff. So like a automated external defibrillator device, we've talked about that before, but that's covered with, um, BLS type of life support. Um, but I do um, uh, work in a, a facility that has access to more advanced, um, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Equipment, I guess, um, drugs and things like that, where if there were an emergency, it'd be nice to be able to um, help out a little bit more intimately. Um, so I asked, actually asked if I could go ahead and get recertified for advanced cardiovascular life support training. So that was a two week or two week, two day course this week. Um, Tuesday and Wednesday, which in and of itself wasn't terribly long. Um, it was on the complete other side of town, which traffic is terrible trying to get there. So I was getting up pretty early to get there. Um, a lot of classroom hours, a lot of, uh, a little bit of self-study beforehand, making sure that you know all the algorithms and medications and doses and, um, especially when you haven't done it for a little while, there's, there's like three different drugs that all begin with the letter a, and they all have different uses and different doses. And it's just, you want to make sure everything is, is set. And, um, cause it's one of those things where if you're called upon to use these skills, you don't want to have to go now, wait a minute, was it this one or this one at this dose? It should be automatic. It should be memory items. It should be, um, your training kicks in and you do what you're supposed to do to save someone's life. So, it's um, one of them arsenic. You know, they phased that one out about a hundred years ago. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> when they realized it had the opposite, had the opposite <laughs> uh, of the intended effect of keeping someone alive. Well, um, the national health system doesn't keep up with uh, the sort of stuff the uh, stuff Steph does. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and then on, you know, on the second day, they they run you through these. They call them mega code scenarios. So. Um, Basically, you have to go through and and uh, prove that you're competent to run the code situation for whatever is occurring, whether it's which type of uh, uh, 
uh, emergency situation it is. Is it uh, what type of cardiac arrest is it? Is it uh, something where you just have to do supportive care? Um, and it's it, you know they kind of put you through all the different uh, <clears throat> the roles as well. But they're really looking to see that if you were the one in charge of running the situation, can you do that competently and by the algorithms? So, and then there's like a 50 question test, but that really wasn't too bad. So. Excellent. Hmm? Well, I'm glad that's all over with. Yes, me too. Um, I mean, your intro part. Oh, yeah. No, I'm just that, kidding. Me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> uh, uh, sorry. I didn't mean to be so. But I was, I think I did mention a couple um, episodes ago, I was curious to see if a lot of the train, because I haven't done the course in a couple of years, because um, it wasn't required for me, if it had become more computer-based um, training. But I was very pleased to see that it was very hands-on, interactive. The instructor sat there and walked through all the different potential scenarios multiple times, different ways of looking at things. Um, you know, training and simulation will never be the real thing, but they did try to um, bring it as close to the real thing as possible. So, All right. Well, Nick, let's move to you. Um, so you were going to head over to the States and have a a big uh, live recording slash meetup in D.C. How did that go? Yeah. <laughs> yes, we were. We had it all set up. I, I bought cables, and we had a trial run, and everything was going to be fine. I, I guess going to come to the hotel, bring lots of beer. It was going to be really good fun. And uh, then uh, I was due to be in the office a couple of days before that trip. Uh, but the day before that... Uh, I, my back obviously decided that I was going to be working way too hard and thought it would give me a holiday. So, uh, I, yeah, I was just bending over, uh, doing a bit of uh, housekeeping in the shower and, uh, threw my back out. So I've got a bit of a, a, a weak disc down around L4, L5, and I'm assuming that's where this was. And, uh, it had me, um, uh, bellowing like an old warthog. Uh, and crawling on my hands and knees uh, to the bed where I just lay going, oh, gold, for uh, a few hours. And, um, and now I am a little better, uh, mainly because of uh, the trifecta of drugs that uh, my GP has me on. So uh, they're various um, ones that you would normally buy on street corners, I think, for, <laughs> for a considerable amount of money. And uh, and if this is the way I'm supposed to feel after this, then I'm really I really don't know where I am actually. <laughs> uh, I never knew clouds were numbered because uh, I've just <laughs> floated past one. And Do yours was... have colours too, or no? Just, no, just no, they're just, just numbers. Okay. This was cloud number nine, and uh, uh, I'm up around cloud number nine at the moment. Well, so. Nick, do you are you aware that uh, the um, bending over backwards? That's just a, a phrase. It's a it's a saying. <laughs> it's you're not really supposed to bend a over little. backwards. Yeah. Uh, well, I've seen people do it. I don't see the well, problem. But not a lot of people can do it. <laughs> <laughs> My back doesn't agree. Yeah. So sadly, I was uh, obviously these drugs are way too strong to uh, do anything meaningful. So uh, I'm grounded till I can get off them. GP said at least two weeks. Uh, I'm seeing a physio uh, who uh, just you know just says take it easy and do a few gentle exercises. Uh, he didn't say I couldn't podcast, so here I am. Uh, and um, one thing I must mention, though, completely uh, beside the point uh, of flying, is that uh, uh, in my spare time, I've I've been um, prostituting myself. I'm very sorry to say, on 
other podcasts. So <gasps> I do a, I do apologize, Captain Jeff. I was trying to keep it a secret, but uh, um, uh, Pip got all upset when I didn't mention that uh, I was on his show uh, about 10 days ago, just before our last show, um, which was a fabulous show. I really enjoyed it, and I love taking part and uh, discussing uh, things with uh, Pip Nell on that show, um, doing a sort of a feedback special. And then last night I was on PTUK. So I hope you're not going to dock my pay this week. Um, yeah, let me write this down. No, we're just going to yeah, ask them for for uh, yeah, yeah. reimburse me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. going to invoice them. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> yeah, okay, I quite understand. But uh, uh, my dulcet turns have appeared on there, which uh, was great fun. Uh, particularly uh, Peter UK last night enjoyed that, and uh, of course, Pip Show is uh, always good for a laugh. He's uh, he's a lovely host, uh, and it's a great show. He's a funny guy. He is. He is. Captain Al was on there and he was being equally funny. So. Oh, yeah. I think and the two together. together. Crazy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Nev in the chat room, uh, Nick says, uh, ha, I think Nick has taken, taken the term freelance to a new level. Oh, there you go. And he has generously offered us $10, though, for but, Nick's appearance on oh, their show. But freelance, I mean, free, you know, doesn't mm. that mean mm. you're not supposed to be paid? I don't know. Oh, good point. Yes, good point, freelance, yes. <laughs> Doesn't it go back to the days of knights of old, where if you were uh, a knight who was not actually employed by someone, you were a freelance? So you, Oh. I don't know. Sounds reasonable to me. Yeah, I, so. I just made that up on the spot. Well, excellent, but I think uh, that's a new entry in the Wikipedia uh, article on <laughs> there freelance. There you go. That'll give me something to do in my spare time because at the moment I'm doing absolutely nothing. So I, I missed two days of ground training, which I'll, I think I'll have probably have to catch up in. Otherwise, I'll have timed out of SEP uh, currency. And, of course, I've missed the Washington. I've got another Washington at the end of the month. I'm hoping I'll be fit in order to do that. And I've got next month's flying, which I haven't quite put up on the APG calendar yet. But I've got a... Uh, a long Barbados, uh, at least three nights in Barbados, enjoying the sunshine, and then a JFK, and then I'm into my last uh, month's flying. You know, one of those trips should be to Atlanta. The other one will have to be a short one at the beginning of the month. Don't know where yet, though. Wow. Okay. So you just mentioned the APG calendar, the community calendar, which can be found by going to the uh, website Airline, Airline Pilot Guy dot com you know, slash calendar or you can just click on the calendar menu item also uh, be sure that you become part of our slack team because you can find that sort of information there as well and absolutely if you had oh and just again plane safety podcast is awesome and uh, as well as the plane talking uk did i say that right plane talking uk Yes. Okay. Because for some Bing. reason, as soon as I said that, I thought, that doesn't even sound right. PTUK is the way we normally refer to it. All right. So check those out, please. I know that most of you listening to this probably already do. Um, so if you had gone to the airlinepilotguy.com slash calendar, the airline, the APG community calendar this week, you would have seen that um, we were going to record the show on Thursday evening. Nick had just mentioned. Sorry. <laughs> That's right. And I see the note that I'm Skyping. So, hmm, I don't know why my bandwidth is not 
up to snuff. Should be. I'm uh, hardwired into the router, router, whichever pronunciation you prefer. Um, so, as Nick mentioned, he was going to be in D.C. for um, the uh, recording of the show this week, and I was going to be in Indianapolis. It was going to do the same sort of thing. Uh, we're going to have a we were going to have a pre-show meetup and uh, lubrication, and then we we're going to head up to the studio and uh, record the show. And uh, at least four folks that I know of were going to be in my live studio in the uh, hotel room. Uh, but um, earlier in the morning, uh, en route from where Wichita, I guess, uh, we received a reroute message on our ACARS, and it said, nope, nope, Jeff, you're not going to go to Indianapolis. You're going to go to Albany, New York instead. So that ruined the whole opportunity for us to have the Indianapolis meetup and live recording. So sorry, everyone who had planned on doing that. We're just, we're just going to have to do that some other time. Um, so, but while I was in Wichita, um, I had a chance to meet up with Nick Camacho and his dad, Hector. And you'll recall that Nick is the one who is involved in Betsy's Biscuit Bomber, um, the C-47 that is scheduled to uh, take a, an amazing tour. They're going to participate in DAX over Normandy, June 2nd through the 9th, uh, the 75th D-Day commemoration. They're also going to take part June 10th through the 19th in the 70th anniversary of the Berlin Airlift. And they're also going to be doing some paratrooper drops uh, in Ducksworth, England. Did I say that right? Sorry, sorry, Jeff. I, I you skyped a little bit there, so I didn't oh. quite catch it. Oh, Duxford. okay. Duxford. Is Duxford. that what you were saying? Yeah. Yeah. There you well, go. it says for some reason on this uh, their website it says Ducksworth, but I don't think that's right. Duxford is probably no Duxford. I okay. Anyway, uh, so I'll put a uh, link to this uh, website in the show notes, and uh, also we have a channel on Slack specifically uh, related to this whole adventure with the C-47. But anyway, I had a chance to meet up with Nick and his dad, and we went to a barbecue joint in Wichita, and it was pretty decent barbecue. I thought actually pretty good barbecue. Uh, but we spent hours talking about how Nick got involved, Nick and his dad got involved with this uh, C-47 out in uh, California and uh, the whole, uh, learned all kinds of things about this. So it was a, a fascinating lunch and small little meetup uh, in Wichita. So I really, uh, really enjoyed that. How am I doing? Am I still Skyping out? You sound fine to me. Okay. And look fine. Okay. Picture is good. <laughs> yeah. Just uh, yeah. Thanks. Sorry. Um, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> uh, I just yeah. felt like maybe gonna... my, my meaning wasn't clear there. I just yeah. Thought it well, was no, it. it's very clear now. <laughs> Sorry, it's been a long week. It's early. It's been an emotional week for me, and it's just not helping stuff. Yeah, and I've got this dog trying to. Oh. Oh. He was feeling left out. So uh, too bad. Truman wanted to come say hi. Hello, Truman. He can't hear me, of course. No. Okay. So um, had had that four day trip, and uh, we ended up postponing, obviously, the uh, recording of three sixty six uh, till today. So 
that is it. You're all caught up with me. And uh, again, just a reminder, if you want to keep up with what the crew is doing and where uh, Dana and Nick and I are flying uh, and uh, meetups that Steph might be involved in as well, uh, head over to the uh, APG community calendar. And that's that. Very good. Um, let's see. I'm looking at my notes here. And oh, wait a minute. I think that this might be interesting. Um I got this audio feedback, and I, I think that we need to play it. This is Miami Hick. Had a couple of comments. I was listening to episode number 365. I heard that great commercial for Go Around the Ceiling. Man, whoever made that is uh, top-notch. I had a couple comments here. One was that crazy story about that plane having to go around because uh, of the other plane that crossed the runway and I'm pretty familiar with holding short uh, especially when I'm using the bathroom so I was going to comment on that uh, about the flashing lights uh, on the uh, Mad Dog you know flashing letting everybody know you're there last time I flew to Mad Dog I tried that it was just too hard and having to light the candle blow it out light the candle blow it out like geez just hope you see me uh, and about that uh oh what's that terrible uh, uh air toxicity whatever i ain't no doctor i can't pronounce it but uh the toxic uh, air whatever people on the mad dog don't have to worry about that. It's good news because uh, it has an open cockpit so plenty of fresh air and uh that problem with southwest was having with their bags i've done some uh extensive research on this and i've come to the conclusion that the reason southwest is having trouble counting their bags is because nobody that works there can count past 20 so that's a big problem so and everybody who works at southwest i'm just kidding i'm just kidding i know you can count to 25 miami hick over and out <laughs> oh so awesome to hear from miami uh, yeah. hick again yes oh, absolutely brilliant yeah definitely and uh, he, he, he got the description of the mad dog perfectly. I thought that's great. Yeah. A couple, several digs, by the way. Thanks a lot. That's okay. I'm used to it. Yeah. We know he, we know he does it out of love. Yes. Mm -hmm. We love you, Miami Hick. Yes. We really do. And uh, I think everybody will be excited to, uh, to hear your voice again. So. Absolutely. All right. You know what time it is? It's Java time. It's time for us mm -hmm. to talk about the Got coffee fun. Coffee mug right here. Let's do it. Yes. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah. That's the uh, Jeff Smith. Wonderful uh, musician, jingle creator, singing the Java Jive because we're going to talk about the Coffee Fund, which is your way to support the APG show financially, if you have the financial resources to do so. And since the last episode, a couple have taken advantage of the Coffee Caf Fund classic method. They are Jeff Moeller, David Wilson, and Frank O'Connor. Thank you, gents, for your 
generous contributions to the fund. And also, we have another way to do this. You can become a patron of the show via Patreon. And since the last show, we have a new producer. Yay! Uh, Pete Weeks. Welcome to the Patreon and uh, the uh, Coffee Fund Cadre, Pete. And we do appreciate everyone's patronage there. So if you want to find out how you can become involved in this great group of folks, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. And so will we. Stand by for news. All right. Now, I guess this occurred, this crash occurred after the last recording. It seems like it's been, (laughs) it just amazes me because uh, it's been so much in aviation news lately that it feels like it's already been two weeks, but apparently not. Uh, A crash, another crash of a 737 MAX in Ethiopia, an Ethiopian uh, 737-8 MAX. Uh, crashed leaving Addis Ababa in Ethiopia to Nairobi, Kenya, uh, Kenya, with 149 passengers and eight crew. They departed the runway seven right, and they were climbing out when the aircraft leveled off at about 9,000 feet MSL. Uh, and I think the terrain is pretty high there, so it wasn't that high above ground. I think the terrain in that area is, what, around 8,000-something? It's it's pretty high elevation, yeah. high altitude. Anyway. I don't know. I haven't operated out of that. Okay, I, neither have I. But I remember I reading it somewhere. It yeah, do that, please. But it didn't. It didn't get up very high, uh, and radar contact was lost shortly after that. And uh, the airline reported rescue and recovery forces are on their way to the crash site. Now, this article from the Aviation Herald was almost immediately after the crash. Of course, now we know that um, the uh, aircraft obviously did crash and they have recovered the cockpit voice and flight data recorders and they are now being analyzed and we are all waiting. I did check before we started recording the show and we're recording the show, by the way, again, to remind you, Saturday morning, the 16th of March. So um, I'm not sure if we've gotten any information yet. Yes, Steph? Oh, I was just going to say Addis Ababa is at uh, 2,326 meters above sea level or 7,726 feet. Okay. Yeah, it's so, pretty high. High terrain. Yeah, yeah so at 9,000 feet, that's only, what, 1,500 feet above ground-ish? Yeah. Okay. So it didn't get up, uh, uh, their altitude didn't get very high. Um, so uh, a lot of the data that we do have based on satellite tracking and uh, satellite um, altitude slash speed data uh, is revealing that this is suspiciously uh, similar to uh, the other crash of the 737 um, 8 MAX or MAX 8 um, in Indonesia in, I believe, October, sometime in the fall of last year. Yep. And uh, so 
Um, this has led to, I believe, every uh, regulatory agency grounding the uh, fleet of not the entire 737 fleet, but the Max 8 and Max 9 aircraft. And um, so we were, um, it, it's it, very easy to speculate here. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll try to shy away from any, um, you know, speculation that may uh, send us in the wrong direction. But uh, we just thought we'd mention it here because, of course, that right now that seems to be one of the uh, most talked about news items in aviation right now anyway. Uh, what do you all think about this? There seem to be uh, an awful lot of um, people taking one side or another, Jeff, and neither of which I agree at the moment. This is uh, possibly similar to the first crash, but there are no facts. Uh, we know that it took off and crashed shortly after takeoff. Uh, and, and that is really the limit of what we know. Now, of course, the um, regulatory authorities in all the countries that have asked this aircraft uh, not to fly may know more than us. Uh, so that may have uh, made their decision a little more clear-cut. But I hear both camps. I hear um, one camp saying that, uh, that Boeing have made a big mistake and that they're in bed with the FAA, and I do not agree with that, and that is pure speculation. Some of it is, uh, um, is really badly biased, uh, and I hate that. On the other hand, I hear uh, fervent Boeing supporters saying that this could never have happened in the United States uh, or in a, uh, a Western country because the pilots are so well-trained they would have... Uh, worked out what was going wrong and would have prevented it. And I disagree with that very strongly as well because um, there's absolutely no evidence to, to suggest that the pilots in either case uh, weren't anything other than well-experienced and well-qualified pilots. So uh, I really do hate the fact that we've got these two factions who seem to be fighting out on the social media. I'm going to try and steer well clear of it. Uh, until we know what the hell's going on. And until that happens, uh, I am personally going to hold my peace on the subject. I think that's good advice. What do you think about this stuff? Well, you know, I think it's always tricky when there's not a lot of information to go on, at least early on, because um, certainly, as we've mentioned, that leads to speculation. But it also leads to a lot of fear from people who don't have a lot of uh, either aviation or airline knowledge. Um, and uh, I'm saying this just based on what I commentary I've heard from um, people uh, just in the general public over the past week, because certainly folks I work with um, and friends of mine know that I have an interest in aviation and, you know, friends in the airline world. So I get a lot of questions regarding that, but um, th there's a lot of folks who, who don't know a whole lot and uh, kind of project their own impression and opinion of what might've happened onto that. And that just leads to further talk and further speculation. Um, I'll be really excited when we do have more data to go on because then you can start to say, okay, here's what it looks like the problem truly might have been and how do we fix that and certainly prevent a tragedy like this from happening again. Um, I mean, no one wants this. It's a new version, new variant of an aircraft. There have been two, you know, accidents with a lot of loss of life. Um, within a relatively short period of time. And I think certainly that's going to get everyone's attention. So. But the good news is we, they've, record, they've recovered the 
cockpit voice recorder and flight data recorder, did they send them to France for? I believe uh, so. There was some confusion at first about yeah. where they were going to send the uh, the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder, but I believe it was sent to Paris. Yeah, I think initially they tried sending it to Germany, but they didn't have the software to examine it correctly, so it's gone to the BEA in uh, France. Okay. Good. Well, hopefully that means we'll get some, at least some data or some some information. Um, I do like it when investigations are very transparent and forthcoming with their facts, and I think that will um, help allay a lot of concern and fear that might be out there in the general public about flying not only the Max 8 and Max 9, which no one's flying at the moment, but also 737s in general. So It is very frustrating, especially when, of course, it's always frustrating to watch anything aviation-related on media. <laughs> but it's uh, very frustrating because of the fact that uh, a lot of people don't understand the difference between the maneuvering characteristics augmentation system, the MCAS, and other aspects of auto flight and systems on airplanes, trim and that kind of thing. When you see these things conflated, it's just making me want to, you know, hit my head against the wall. Uh, but, you know, I don't, I don't know, you know, what we can do about that because the general public is never going to have the depth of understanding of the systems of an airplane or how these sure. things are. And, and, you know, from the point of being here in the United States, um, for most people here, this is something that happened basically a world away across an ocean on a different continent. Um, I had multiple people mention to me, oh, well, it, you know, it was Ethiopian Airlines. And I said, well, wait a minute, they're an airline with a great safety record as far as I know. Um, I, I don't think there's anything to suggest that there's anything substandard about their airline. In fact, I, I think it has a very good safety record. So there was a lot of trying to set that type of thing. And that was just people basing it based on you know, where they were located in the world, nothing to do with any type of facts or knowledge. Well, you know, uh, I have to admit that on a private communication, uh, I made that mistake right off the bat. I made the, a jump to the assumption or conclusion that uh, Ethiopian uh, and their safety record wasn't that great. But then I was corrected uh, quite quickly and happy to admit that I was wrong about that. And I guess I was conflating things myself with uh, Lion Air, which as and as well as all the other Indonesian uh, outfits out there don't have the most sterling record when it comes to safety and uh so it's easy to you know social media is a is a dangerous things a thing at times <laughs> it can be a really really wonderful thing uh and it also can be a very negative uh thing it can you know and we I was just noticing the little sidebar conversation going on in the chat room about well with this type of uh, it, this has just been, for whatever reason, you know, I think a lot of the things that uh, Nick was mentioning about people being in different camps, a very emotionally um, charged incident for for a lot of people. Um, you know, would that have happened in the day before the internet and social media? And, and I think Nick was quite right to point out there have been, certainly long before that, um, things that happened with speculation regarding incidents and accidents that lead to negative public perception. Yep. Yeah, we forget how strong the newspapers were in uh, days gone by and uh, how much speculation there would be there. It wouldn't be as immediate, and it might be slightly better considered, but there was still an awful lot of speculation. And the wheels turned very slowly uh, a few decades ago, whereas now I suspect we will find out certainly a preliminary um, amount of information uh, pretty quickly. Uh, and I was hoping that we'd get something out 
already uh, yeah. so that we could at least uh, have something to hang our hats on. But uh, we're just going to have to wait. Perhaps by the next show, uh, we'll have some idea. But I, for one, I hope that uh, this aircraft uh, proves to have a clean bill of health and gets back in the air because we don't want pilots to be losing their jobs. We don't want airlines to be suffering, uh, as undoubtedly some are. Um, and I'm thinking particularly of, say, Norwegian, who uh, we know are having a few problems financially, and they have a few of these aircraft, and this is probably the last thing they need uh, is to have the, their fleet grounded. So the quicker we can uh, establish the cause and, uh, if necessary, allow the aircraft to uh, get flying again without any concerns, the better. The other thing that um, I think is a problem with social media is that the kind of discussions that, that we're having now on social media, um, you know, you're not face to face with a person. And sometimes you, you almost feel like you can say things that you would not say to somebody face to face in a conversation at the water cooler. And I think that um, maybe um, it would be good advice for people to to think about how what they are saying might how that might be received uh, from somebody and yeah, you lose you lose the emotion. You you lose the the nonverbal cues of someone's true intent and um, just the not so much the meaning of their words, but what they're implying with their words. And trust me, this whole thing with the aviation and this discussion about the the Max Eight, Max Nine, whatever is nothing compared when you start getting into politics uh, oh, out there and, and let's, how let's not go there <laughs> or, or climate change or whatever you know some of these things vaccinations are, Woo-hoo. wow i mean I, I see some of these exchanges i'm going okay that's i'm out of here <laughs> it's like but, but let's let's crazy. you know the real important ones flat earth yeah well that's of course uh, a fact not even a question <laughs> Anyway, chemtrails. I was really trying to. Anyway. Well, of course, chemtrails. We're not supposed to talk about that I'm stuff. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we, that, we, we know the truth about that. <laughs> Just feel free to edit that comment out. Okay, I'll fix it in post. I'm wearing a T-shirt that says that. Okay, uh, that's enough of that. Until we get more information, uh, which I hope between now and the next episode, we'll have some answers regarding. Uh, some facts about what actually happened here. And then uh, we'll take it from there and see how we can fix all of this stuff. And I think the blame can probably be spread out. I don't think it's going to be any particular person or any particular company. Uh, it's going to be probably something that can be shared equally. But Well, no matter what, you always have to have those holes in the Swiss cheese line up, right? Yep, that's for sure. Okay. Um, second thing we have here. Did you hear about this uh, accident? Um, a Piper PA. Until I read it here. Yeah. So I, one of the sites I go for uh, information regarding incidents, accidents, etc. is uh, aviationsafety.net, aviation-safety.net. And it's the Aviation Safety Network, I believe. Um, and uh, I thought this was interesting. It was a uh, Piper PA 25-2235. Pawnee B, um, November 145, Alpha Bravo, the uh, the registration number. Um, it's not your typical looking uh, Piper. It's It kind of looks like an ag. Yeah, it looks like a crop duster almost. Yeah, I think it may have been designed for that kind of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, it was being used uh, to tow banners, aerial banners. And... Uh, this aircraft was flying off the uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida coastline and uh, ended up having 
an issue. And I have a little bit of uh, audio, if you don't mind me playing. We're five off of Bravo. Traffic is now heading to your right about uh, two miles up direction, 400. By the way, I'm going to pause it. Uh, this is Fort Lauderdale Tower uh, that we're listening to right there. Uh, traffic is right. Thanks. Five off of Bravo. Bravo, sorry to ask you again, but uh, are you uh, heading northbound now at this point or uh, going back south? Bravo, Bravo is going to do a couple circuits uh, at Commercial Pier, and then uh, we'd like to do the Zulu, Route Zulu, and then southbound after, after Zulu. Right. Number four, Alpha Bravo, the uh, previously spotted uh, Skyhawk is passing now off your left northbound, followed by a stationer uh, will be passing off your right uh, north at 600. Standard to 145 off of Foxford, Fort Lauderdale Tower. Correction, uh, banner to 145 off of Bravo, Fort Lauderdale Tower. Banner 145 off of Bravo, Fort Lauderdale Tower. Number 132, request. Uh, we're just going to transition southbound, then cancel. 132. Number uh, 132, no, we have a request. Uh, if you don't mind uh, transitioning now, oh, Christian, descending now to 500, and uh, if you could look off your right onto the buildings near the Oakland Park area and see if you uh, spot anything unusual. All right, going down to 500, and uh, we're looking. 132, give me, uh, uh, where is that? We're, uh, yeah, there's a report of a uh, downed airplane, uh, banner toast specifically, a small airplane with a banner. Uh, he may have uh, hit one of the buildings there. And uh, give me a direction for that, 132. It should be around your, uh, say, uh, 2 to 3 o'clock, and uh, Oakland Park Boulevard, so just inland, just, just inland. All right, 132, we're looking. Thank you. And once we put ten for you to deviate, just continue transition southbound and uh, just let me know if you spot anything unusual. Yeah, one three two, uh, we're uh, we're taking a look now. Thank you. Hey, tower one three two, requesting a left three sixty. I do think I see something. Number uh, one three two, approved as requested. All right, left three sixty, one three two. And appreciate the help. Yeah, not a problem. Southwest eighteen fifty seven, contact Miami departure. Good day, Southwest eighteen fifty seven. And tower one three two, we got him in sight down here. One three two. Uh, do you say your uh, the conditions of the airplane and any uh, description you can uh, they can give me uh, so I can relate to my supervisor? Hey, one three two. We gotta do another one three sixty for that. Roger. Roger. All right, one three two. I'm ready. One three two. Go ahead. All right, one three two. The uh, airplane looks like it's uh, a complete loss. Uh, fire is on scene. Number one three two. Roger. I uh, appreciate the help. Uh, you may uh, transition southbound now. You said uh, you said the aircraft is on fire, or the uh, the uh, fire rescue is on scene. Uh, fire rescue is on scene. The airplane is uh, completely But and uh, where uh, where exactly is the aircraft? Is it in a building or uh, or on the uh, road? Uh, it looks like it's on uh, on top of a parking garage. Uh, I'm right on top of it right now. If you can mark the location, one three two. We have you. Thank you very much for the help. Uh, one three two. Uh, would you like to do a transition uh, southbound now? Uh, yeah, as soon as we uh, hit the shoreline, we'll go south. Number 132, again, we really appreciate your help. No problem, sir. All right, so uh, that was compressed a bit. Uh, there were some transmissions uh, from other airplanes and such that really didn't apply to this particular uh, situation. And so, as you heard, the uh, Banner Tow aircraft, the Piper PA-25-235 Pawnee, uh, ended up crashing into one of these high-rise 
condominium buildings right there on the uh, Fort Lauderdale coastline. Fortunately, uh, the only person um, involved in, and was killed was the pilot, um, and nobody uh, in the building or uh, near the swimming pool or anybody on the ground was uh, was hurt in this uh, incident. And really, uh, I've looked to see if there are any updates regarding exactly what happened in this situation, and, and I haven't seen anything. I'm not sure why. Uh, must have had some, uh, I'm thinking that must have had some kind of an issue with uh, engine power or something, uh, because I wouldn't. Yeah, I'm just, it's strange to end up on the building side of things, because you've got the ocean mm-hmm. just on the other side. I mean, I, you know, the beach wouldn't, if it's sunny day and crowded, is not a great place to try and do a forest landing, but I just don't understand. I mean, I'm trying to figure out how, I know he was talking about doing um, a couple circuits around a pier or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just Maybe distracted, um, wasn't paying attention, and I would imagine maybe towing a banner. You probably have a pretty high angle of attack uh, uh, mm-hmm. at the speed that you're flying when you're towing a banner. I don't know. I'm not a banner tow pilot. I'm not sure exactly how that works, but maybe, you know, it's it might be hard to see what you're you know, what's coming at you right in front of you? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's, um, I'd be interested to know more, more information about, uh, what they think transpired or the, the actual path of the aircraft. Yeah, me too. If anybody listening, uh, has any, any sources or any information about that, uh, go ahead and send us some feedback regarding it because I think, you know, it might be something that we, or at least some of us can, can learn a lesson mm-hmm. from. Yeah, I, I've never tried this, and uh, I'm assuming with a damn great banner behind you, you don't have a lot of spare performance. And if you're in difficulty, the, one of the first things you'd do is jettison the banner. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether that might have malfunctioned, uh, but certainly uh, you'd think it would be safer, as Jeff suggested, to turn out to the ocean, uh, because you know even if you crash on the uh, on the on the, in the sea you might flip on your back but it's a darn sight better than going into yeah a that would be it would definitely building. be my first choice uh yeah. i mean sometimes you don't you know you don't have a choice depending on what, what was going on in the situation but um, yeah what sort of height are these guys allowed to fly at oh they fly pretty low like 500 feet 500 feet or less yeah it doesn't give you a lot of spare does no. it no Mm-mm. not at all no. Yeah. And of course, yeah, a lot of guys building hours do this kind of flying, don't they? So Absolutely. you you may not be a very experienced pilot to start with. You know, you said, uh, Steph, it would be your uh, preference to land in water uh, in this case and not hit a building. <laughs> It'd be my preference to land on a runway, to, well. <laughs> to be perfectly clear. <laughs> okay. But uh, given given lack of, op- oper- of uh, choices... Yes. Well, I think that in light of that comment, I think yes, we, should we should skip. On to- we should skip to F. And uh, this is a an incident that occurred in a Cirrus um, SR twenty two. And uh, let's see, they were uh, the aircraft was gliding eight thousand feet above the Atlantic Ocean. I wouldn't say gliding. But it's no, I think it was flying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when the plane's engine shut off earlier this week, and this article was uh, written when. Uh, March 16th. May, it was May 5th or oh. March, May, March 5th. Okay. March 5th. Yeah. Okay. Um, so within just a few minutes, veteran pilots, Ed Regensburg and his pal, Dan Tucker on the way home after a diving trip in the Virgin islands were miraculously drifting away from the wreckage on a raft that they had been able to salvage. You know, the raft was actually inside the airplane. I don't, mm-hmm. um, this really happened. 
the Greensboro men, largely unscathed, that was a quote, uh, and surrounded by water for as far as they could see, repeated to each other as in the distance the plane began a 20-minute descent to the bottom of the ocean. And they, uh, the two pilots now say they can laugh about it now. Um, at the crack of dawn Tuesday in the Virgin Islands, they loaded up the dive gear and luggage and started what would be three legs of an eight-hour trip with fueling stops in Turks and Caicos in the Bahamas and Fort Lauderdale, Florida, before ending in Greensboro. Two hours into the first leg the oil light flashed on. It could have been from a number of reasons, but then the plane started struggling. Eventually, the engine shut down and the propeller stopped moving. I said in this article, propellers. Just, just, just one propeller. <laughs> yeah, just one. <laughs> um, and then Regensburg told Tucker he was deploying the parachute. His eyes got as big as saucers, <laughs> Regensburg said. It was a one in a million chance something like this might happen. But neither man had time for emotions. Training kicked in. And as we know, listeners to the show, that's what happens when you're in a situation, uh, you know, you're, you're training. Hopefully you had good training. It kicks in and takes over. And uh, let's see. He's uh, Regensburg is a longtime volunteer with Angel Flight Soars, flying medical missions. One of the things you practice all the time is engine out. What are you going to do? Uh, Regensburg had radioed the FAA to alert them that he was having trouble. Uh, he could also hear the controller talking to the Coast Guard, which then dispatched a frigate out from 100 miles away in Puerto Rico. It would take about four hours to reach them. It was at 1,500 feet when Regensburg pulled the parachute. The plane made a bungee-jumping jerk and then floated toward the water. He said it was like hitting concrete. Anything else in a plane without a working engine might glide into the water and cartwheel on impact, trapping disoriented passengers upside down in the water or worse. When the Cirrus hit the water, Regensburg door, Regensburg's door opened or popped open, and he was able to leverage the raft out the door, although it landed upside down in the water. He climbed onto the wing to turn it over. They got inside the raft, and uh, about 20 minutes later, they watched the last of the uh, plane, uh, the tail, uh, slip under the water, <laughs> tailpipe, as if it had never been there. Uh, we're just kind of laughing at the <laughs> article yeah. here. It's, it's, they, they tried oh, to introduce some drama, I think. <laughs> so, yeah. Leaving not even a hint of a smell of oil or gas. Two hours later, uh, Regensburg and Tucker were spotted, uh, or they spotted a ship in the distance, the Regal Princess cruise ship. And uh, they said, I said, Ed, with everything we've been through up to now, I hope this cruise ship doesn't run us over. <laughs> They didn't. The Coast Guard had notified the cruise ship of the rescue mission, and the captain of the cruise ship took the boat out of its path to reach the men, which was nice. From a distance, the captain launched a smaller rescue boat, which the men were able to climb aboard with the help of staff. Hundreds of people were hanging over the side, Regensburg said of the cruise ship passengers. They were cheering. And uh, on board the cruise ship, a doctor checked them out. Both men were dehydrated, but otherwise fine. I came out of my examination room and Dan was sitting there with an IV in one hand and a beer in the other. <laughs> Love <it>. Lovely. <laughs> That's great. The captain gave them a room, told them they could get room service if they wished. And the video of the rescue began circulating on social media. The next day they were able to take a commercial flight home. Um, when the men think back to the crash, they now choke up talking about it. They both shed tears on the cruise ship once they were safe. Had it been at night, had they not had a parachute, they might not have drifted away from the wreckage without injury. And uh, 
the, the, the article ends, on his computer screen, Regensburg has photos of airplanes, Cirrus models, up for sale. So looks like that's not going to keep him from aviating again in a Cirrus. Nah. Well, I mean, good outcome, you know. Uh, not sure what led to the uh, engine problem and the, the oil pressure problem, but things happen. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it sounds like, I mean, it, you know, you do need to know how to use these systems on the aircraft if it's available to you. It's not something you can just go, oh, well, we got a parachute. We'll just figure out how to use it. There is actually a checklist to run for it. There are certain parameters you have to meet in terms of speed, um, height above ground. You can't, you know, if you have a problem right on takeoff, you have to be, I think, 400 feet in straight and level flight to assure that it's going to be open and, and do its job. Um, um, and actually, the handle itself, I actually uh, didn't realize how much force it requires because I've never had to pull one. But it's about 45 pounds of force. You have to move that that pin or that handle about two inches. So. I would imagine that's a good thing. So you don't accidentally. Yeah, you don't want to accidentally dis, uh, dislodge it uh, in in flight. Um, there is. It's funny when you part of the um, uh, pre-flight checklist for flying the series. You have to remove like a grenade-style pin from the cap's handle because there's a pin that keeps it in place once on the or that you know locks it when you're on the ground, so you don't accidentally deploy it there either. But you know, we always refer to it as pulling the grenade pin. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I, I mean, I have to say, it's a fantastic piece of kit just for these sort of circumstances uh, where a an accident uh, turns into nothing more than a, a drama because uh, mm -hmm. of this fantastic technology. So, uh, Well, and these guys were, were otherwise prepared as well. I mean, they knew they were flying over open water for quite a long distance, so they had flotation devices. Um, hopefully they also had, um, you know, you can buy uh, or you can have uh, personal flotation devices that look like small life uh, vests uh, a raft is a nice thing to have if you're going to be in a large body of water um and, and a beacon hopefully hopefully yeah some way to, to for rescuers to actually find your location because you're going to drift a little bit um but yeah uh great outcome uh kind of local to me i mean just up the road from me these guys are from greensboro north carolina and uh good story yeah absolutely try it Triad, exactly. There you go. It sounds like a textbook uh, finish, really, particularly since they were able to be picked up by a cruise ship. Yeah, if you got to be rescued at sea, I think a cruise service. ship is the way to go. <laughs> I mean, you got it's like a you know, it's a whole city floating out there. You've got a doctor on board. You've got all your restaurants and yeah, uh, yeah. accommodations. The navy probably would have just chucked them in the bilge and you know right. left them there. <laughs> <laughs> they they probably said to each other, you know, we ought to do this again. It was fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this was from greensboro.com, this article, and a couple of good pictures, especially the one one of the pilots took of the other in the raft with the uh, Regal Princess cruise ship in the background, which is uh, something I'm sure they're both going to have. Oh, yeah, uh, and you can see in that picture, he's, he's got his own personal flotation device on there, too. Yeah, so. yeah. they were well prepared. Uh, good point, Steph. Uh, and, you know, if you're going to be flying GA out in that kind of single uh, engine yeah. over water yeah. you better be prepared you got you, you have to have all of those things another great shot of the uh tailpipe of the uh <laughs> <tailpipe>. <laughs> of the uh cirrus uh just about to disappear in the ocean yeah the smokestack's already gone down but the tailpipe <laughs> still sticking up uh that's a great photo uh folks you really need to look up this article which we'll have in the show notes and see the beautiful yeah. caps uh the parachute uh, uh cirrus air was it I always can't remember uh, the, what CAP what stands, stands for. Uh, it's 
Cirrus airframe parachute system. That Hold sounds on, good. Let me, let me double check that. Okay. Cirrus airframe parachute system. Yes, yeah. I got it right. Really, okay. really a colorful photo. Uh, all the, the the bright red and bright white uh, against the uh, the blue uh, waters of the. Uh, it's a pretty canopy. I'm wondering how yeah. to, how they got that shot. Was it windy and it had picked the uh, canopy back up again? It must have. Been. Yeah, 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 yeah. I suspect they'll have that blown up on their walls. Oh, I would. It'd be like the yeah. screensaver on my phone or my computer or something. <laughs> yeah. Right. Let me tell you a story. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah story of the ancient mariner. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, good outcome, happy ending, uh, except for the fact that uh, that was a very expensive airplane. Hopefully the insurance will cover yeah, some thank of that. Yeah, goodness for insurance, right? Yeah. 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 All right. Um, let's get back over to C. Uh, a Turkish uh, Airlines Boeing 777-300 flying from Istanbul, Turkey to New York uh, with 326 passengers and 21 crew was en route. Wow, that's a lot of crew. Um, en route at flight level 320, about 50 nautical miles north of Boston, about 45 minutes prior to their estimated landing time at Kennedy, when the aircraft encountered turbulence, causing 29 people to receive injuries. The aircraft descended to flight level 240 and continued to New York for a safe landing. Emergency services were already waiting for the aircraft and transported 10 passengers to hospitals. New York Fire Department reported 28 people received minor injuries and one person received a leg fracture. 10 people were taken to the hospitals. Okay, we just talked about that. This is from the Aviation Herald. Um, the reason why I wanted to mention this is um, that uh, it's just a reminder to folks that uh, it's very important that, and I would imagine it doesn't say so in the article. I haven't been able to uh, discern this uh, information from any other source, but I would imagine that the passengers that were injured in this case should have been, if they weren't up going to the restroom or whatever, uh, if they were in their seat, they should have had their seat belts on and they probably wouldn't have been amongst those who were injured. But again, uh, and I don't know what the situation was, if there were PAs made, if the captain told the flight attendants to take their seats and have their seatbelts on. I don't know if they knew beforehand that there was, you know, if they had information about the fact that they were going to hit this turbulence, but um, it's, uh, you know, it's the number one cause of injuries aboard airliners. It's turbulence. And uh, there are ways to, you know, keep yourself safe. That's my point, I guess, here. Mm -hmm. All right. It's uh, not just, you tell me that seatbelt isn't just decoration. No. It actually, okay, good. Yeah, it's for your safety. Um, I guess that's about all we can really say about that. Um, an Air Transat 737-800, registration Charlie Golf Tango Quebec Golf, performing flight 942 from Montreal to Fort Lauderdale uh, with 189 people on board, was en route at 36,000 feet at 40 nautical miles north of Newark, when the crew received a cargo smoke indication and diverted the aircraft to Newark for a safe landing on runway four right about 16 minutes later. That was pretty quick. Yeah, uh, good job. Yeah. The aircraft was evacuated. Two people received minor injuries as a result of the evacuation. One of them was taken to the hospital. I could read the whole thing, but it would be uh, something that you can read. Uh, we'll have this in the in the show notes. But um, uh, they received the aft cargo smoke indication. They worked the checklists. Uh, the indication stopped for a few seconds and then came on again and never went back out. The crew discharged the Halon into the cargo hold, declared a mayday, and diverted to Newark. The aircraft landed, stopped on the runway. Tower reported seeing no smoke. However, when firefighters opened the aft cargo hold, 
Smoke was visible, and an electrical burning odor was observed. All aboard evacuated via slides. Maintenance examined the aircraft, removed all panels in the cargo hold, inspected all luggage in the cargo hold, but found no trace of fire, heat, smoke, or odor. The smoke detector was identified as defective. The smoke and odor observed by the firefighters is now believed to have been caused by the halon discharged into the cargo hold. The aircraft was returned to service after all parts requiring replacement were replaced. So here's one of the situations where, um, and I believe there was some ATC, liveatc.net um, uh, audio. I, I don't have that uh, available at this point, but uh, they they have the audio of them you know, talking with the, the firefighters and such. And I, I, the crew was trying to discern whether or not this is a, because we talk about it all the time on the show, uh, because starting an, an emergency evacuation on an airplane is almost guaranteed to cause injury, at least minor injury to some. And we have to really think long and hard, uh, Captain Nick and Captain Dana and I, before we make that decision, that critical decision to initiate an evacuation. And as soon as you hear one of the firefighters say, oh, yeah, there is smoke and there's an electrical smell, um, then, you know, you're, you're kind of bound to get everybody off the airplane because it could get really bad very quickly. Uh, the problem is, and I think that this is why I thought it important to talk about on the show today, is for those of us who fly airplanes that have the cargo hold fire detection and suppression systems, that it's something to remember that, yeah, there's going to be something that looks like smoke when they open up the cargo hold door. And I believe that Halon does have that electrical kind of a acrid smell to it. And that, it, you know, reading this kind of reminded me of that. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, that's just something to kind of stick in my, my back pocket to uh, remember if this situation happens with me. And it turns out that, you know, they didn't really have to evacuate. But at that point, when they received that information from the firefighters, you know, I, I think, Nick, you would agree with me that there really was no other choice but to initiate an evacuation. No, no. Once the experts on the scene, and, and of course the cargo hold is not something we have a, you know, any indication from other than the firelight or the smoke light that mm -hmm. comes on the flight deck. So we have to rely on the guys on the ground. Um, interestingly, uh, the preferred method in a lot of airfields is to use infrared cameras uh, which they point at the uh, base of the air or the belly of the aircraft to see whether there are any hot spots. And uh, they will often uh, initiate a controlled evacuation. So one using steps and stairs was a lot safer uh, with the knowledge that they could always blow slides uh, at the remaining doors if uh, things got worse. But when you open up the cargo if there is the start of a fire which the halon has suppressed introducing all that fresh air can Oxygen. cause it to boom up into a very big fire and you don't you know in in my experience that's not a great thing to do with passengers still on board so uh i'm going well it's interesting i would rather have had infrared cameras saying it looks like there are no hot spots in your cargo right, we'll do a controlled uh, evacuation. And then when everyone's off the aircraft right now, you can crack the doors and see what's inside. And the only other point I was going to make was that once you've got one of these firelights, certainly in my type of aircraft, uh, once you fire the halon into the cargo bay, that warning is going to stay on, regardless of whether the fire has been put out or not, because the halon itself will 
cause the optical smoke sensors to still indicate a problem because the halon itself is now obscuring the sensors and it's not just the smoke that might be there. So you really have no idea that you've been successful in suppressing the fire with your uh, fire extinguishers. So regardless, uh, if you get one of these, it's throw the aircraft straight on the ground and then let the uh, fire guys tell you whether you think they think it's a serious thing that requires an evacuation or not. Got to You just have to treat it as if it, it really is a fire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't want to fool around with that. Um, hmm. No, there's too much uh, important stuff down there uh, in the top of the cargo bay, what would be the floor of the passenger's cabin. And uh, things can get out of control quite quickly. You can u- lose a lot of systems very quickly if if a fire gets hold down there. And I'm sure that uh, we, we don't have the, the information regarding this in this particular Aviation Herald article, but I'm sure that on board the aircraft when they were doing this basically emergency descent um, to get the airplane on the ground as soon as possible, they probably were communicating with the flight attendants and saying, hey, does anybody feel... Uh, you know, smell anything, see anything, is the floor anywhere warm? You know, those are things that we do to kind of confirm that there really is uh, some kind of a a serious issue going on in the cargo hold, uh, which may or may not, you know, reveal uh, what's happening, but at least it's a data point. uh, Oh, for certainly. And it it emphasizes the training that our cabin crew have because they are trained to do exactly this sort of thing. And you think about the myriad of emergencies that can occur after the flight deck, uh, they are people who know this kind of stuff and we rely on them and trust that they uh, will carry out their duties well. And uh, they usually, um, oh, usually 99.9% of the time, they're brilliant at doing their job. Mm-hmm. They are. Um, yeah, the, the industry wouldn't be as safe without them, that's for sure. Um, now, this, as we mentioned, an emergency evacu- or an evacuation, Two people with minor injuries as a result, uh, one of them taken to a hospital. Uh, this next item, uh, E, uh, also involves an evacuation. In fact, this incident occurred during the live taping of, taping, uh, recording of uh, PTUK. <laughs> you, I remember when have, we had tape. <laughs> to say, is Nev still backing things up yeah. on tape? I thought he got rid of all Nev that. Under, <laughs> Nev understands what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> And uh, so they were they were uh, recording their 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 brilliant show. Uh, I don't believe it was the last one, but the one before uh, when this actually occurred, and it, w- it occurred at Stansted, um, London um, Airport. Although I understand it's really not London, um, but uh, a Lauda Motion Airbus A three twenty two hundred registration Oscar Echo Lima Oscar Alpha. I always have fun with who, that. Who motion? Uh, Lauda motion, Lauda, loud, oh, Lauda. You want, you want me to be, <laughs> I'm sorry. I should have gone along with it. I didn't realize what you were doing until I started. I tried, I tried that on PT UK yesterday. They wouldn't, they wouldn't fall for it. They, they didn't fall uh, for it. Yeah. And shot down twice there. Oh, sorry. No, I thought it was clever. Actually, my first thought was that Jeff had just butchered the the pronunciation that's what I the that, that's the thing I assumed <laughs> that I was mispronouncing it and then as soon as I started doing it again I'm thinking oh I see what he's doing here I see uh, all right well you know I don't need your help to make myself a fool I can do it myself thank you uh, you're very welcome okay uh, anyway this a three twenty two hundred was accelerating for takeoff from Stansted's runway 22 when the crew rejected takeoff very early into the, t- the takeoff run 
After a loud bang was heard, the aircraft stopped about 270 meters or 890 feet down the runway. Yeah, not very far at all. Very early in the in the roll. An emergency evacuation via slides was performed. Eight passengers received minor injuries as a result of the evacuation. Um, and then, you know, as this was occurring, we're thinking, why, why were they doing a, an emergency evacuation? Unless the thing, you know, was on fire or whatever. But uh, let me continue to read here. Um, according to one of the passengers, uh, he said that he was able to see the left-hand wing and the exhaust of the left-hand engine from his seat. A bang and a brief streak of flames estimated length of flame about two to three meters associated with a puff of smoke was released from the engine. The event looked like similar or looked similar to an engine failure by an A330 in Manchester filmed by Simon Lowe. Uh, And then there's a link to that in this article. Uh, The aircraft came to a stop. The cabin was quiet. No sounds. No alerts. No beeps. Both engines had been shut down. The APU was running. No smoke or unusual odor occurred. No smoke or other anomaly was seen from the engine. In the distance, emergency vehicles could be seen responding. A lot of flashing blue lights surfaced. The fire engines arrived and looked at what appeared to be a leak from the left-hand engine. The flight attendants were communicating with each other, shouting from the front of the cabin to the back of the cabin and back. One of them shouted, It doesn't work! It doesn't really say what they're talking about there. Then they began to shout, Evacuate! An evacuation through all doors, including all left-hand doors, was performed. Eh, not probably a good thing to do if the left-hand engine was the source of the problem. The passenger annotated he didn't notice any of the flight attendants check the left-hand engine through any of the windows. After sliding down, the passenger still did not see any trace of fire or smoke. Um, so the reason why um, I thought it important here uh, to talk about this is it looks as if that this was not a uh, pilot crew initiated evacuation. It appears or seems from what I've read that there was some issue with communications uh, as far as the cockpit crew communicating with the cabin and the cockpit crew cab- uh, communicating with the flight attendants and then the flight attendants being able to communicate with the uh, flight attendants in the back, et cetera. In other words, a complete communication breakdown for some reason. I'm not sure why. I would imagine, uh, Captain Nick, that the airplane would have um, some backup electrical sources so that the PA would work. Or at least you'd have the bullhorn or something. to. Yeah, PA should work on battery power, for heaven's sake. Although... Yeah, I'm, pre- yeah I'm, pre- I'm pretty certain it, it, it does on our aircraft, uh, but they had the AP running anyway. So yeah. uh, they will shut it down in the evacuation. But no, I'm I'm with you. Uh, and I don't know what your SOP, but ours is that the uh, when we come grinding to a halt, when we've done a, uh, a stop on the runway, uh, the first thing the captain does is reach down and say, uh, Cabin crew stand by. Cabin crew stand by. Or cabin. Yeah. So that is the indication that the flight deck are doing their job. They're assessing the situation and just wait. Don't do anything yet. Right. And the next call you'll get is uh, uh, passengers and cabin crew uh, keep your seats, which is our call that uh, it's all going to be fine and we'll probably taxi in or they'll get buses out or whatever, or an evacuate um, command. So it does sound, particularly with the shouting back and forth in the cabin, like someone in the cabin jumped the gun a little bit. That's what it sounds like to me as well. I'm not sure. You know, again, this is only 
a witness, a passenger. Um, but you know, he's saying that nothing was heard um, from the cockpit crew, and that you know could have uh, could have saved this evacuation. Now, maybe an evacuation was warranted. I don't know. But it sounds to me, as you just mentioned, Nick, that this was a cabin slash flight attendant initiated evacuation. And if, if, if our flight attendants don't hear from us after a certain time frame, they have to assume that they need to get out of the airplane. And that's what's going to happen. So one of the, as Nick just said, one of the very most important things in this kind of a situation is to immediately establish communication with the flight attendant crew, the cabin crew, to make sure that they know that you're okay and that you're assessing the situation and to await further instructions. And if you don't do that, you know, they're kind of bound to do what they did here. Uh, so I, I, I'll be interesting, interested to hear what the investigation reveals as far as whether there was that communication established or not. Now, I'm working from memory here, but our cabin crew have a list of things that they're allowed to self-initiate an evacuation, but they're pretty drastic things. So they're like the aircraft is at an unusual attitude, indicating, say, that the uh, landing gear has collapsed. There's obvious signs of fire. Um, the aircraft has broken up. Uh, these sort of major things. But when you get a an engine go bang and you just grind to a halt and stop in the middle of the runway, there's no fire, there's no drama, uh, everything seems to be running and working, um, that, that in, in my outfit would not warrant an evacuation. Right. Now, so, whether the captain made the decision to or not later, that's up to him. But mm -hmm. uh, certainly, I don't think the, the cabin crew and our outfit would have met their criteria. Exactly. And in my particular airplane, since you know we have a very small cockpit, and I know. Yeah. That <laughs> um, <laughs> and I can I'm literally so reach reach around with my arm and just you know turn the uh, knob on the door and. <laughs> And open up the door. Sorry, <laughs> what you're, my you're, language. Not, you're not getting yeah. any better here. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Very poor choice of words. I'm sorry. Uh, you can open up the door and immediate, and the flight attendant is like literally right around the corner. I mean, right there. And I can, and so basically, I brief. If we abort a takeoff, expect that we'll open up the door as soon as we get everything stopped, and we can assess what's going on back there and talk with you directly. And so there's that, that immediate communication there. So the only reason why, we're, why we wouldn't open the door is if something happens, we evacuate and we suspect that something odd is happening, like maybe something terrorist related, you know, where people are trying to break into the cockpit. The or safety whatever. issue, yeah. basically. Yeah. But if it's uh, any other instance, um, you know, uh, uh, engine failure, fire, whatever, except, expect that the door is going to come flying open and we're going to have a communication. Um, and so... Um, I'm not sure that you're able to do that. With, no, I don't think so because uh, the cockpit of the uh, the Airbus 320 is uh, it's it's much larger and and uh, you can't just reach around and open up the door, right? I mean, you have to get up out of your seat and open you, the door. You would on a 320 and on 330, it's right. even bigger, so uh, you're not going to be able to do that either. Yeah. And you don't really want to get out of your seat when you might be needing to exactly. do a checklist, evacuation checklist. So, right. Yeah, but that's why we have telephones and stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, the cabin crew will be keyed up. Uh, and it has happened in the past that, uh, you know, you get a very junior uh, cabin crew, say, at the aft of the aircraft, 
who uh, panics and thinks, oh, this, I better, I better open my door and blow the slide. And then that creates like a domino effect up the aircraft and the whole damned airplane um, ends up evacuating just because one uh, youngster who wasn't really in their job very long has, has sort of blown, blown the slide and uh, that, that can happen. Yeah. So communication is important. All right. Uh, let's see. Moving on. Oh, okay. One of the benefits of flying for the airlines, uh, and it used to be much, a be much better benefit, not so much anymore, is free travel or almost free travel. And uh, we call that non-revenue travel or non-rev travel. Um, and um, most airlines offer you know, this benefit for the employee and their direct family, sometimes for uh, in-laws and that kind of thing. It depends on the airline, what kind of uh, travel benefits you receive. And I think most airlines also offer their employees a certain number of uh, passes that we call buddy passes or mm -hmm. friends and family or something like that. Like which, very reduced rate passes, basically. Yeah, you basically. pay a little bit. <laughs> you but pay some like, money for the privilege of maybe getting on the airplane. Of maybe being able to fly. Yeah. Maybe. And usually maybe. it's not. <laughs> You're not probably not going to get on an airplane. But anyway, uh, there are there are times when this is a, a it works out beautifully. And uh, if there are uh, seats available in the business or first class, uh, very rarely this happens. But uh you know, it's you, you. It's possible that with these kind of passes, you could actually, you know, travel in style. But one of the things that the airlines make very, very clear is that these extra passes, and for Acme, it's like I think they give us eight of these. Um, you can give to people that you know, your friends, uh, and other family members that aren't included in that other allotment of travel benefits, but. You're not allowed to sell them. That's definitely a no-no. Well, can't have a little side business. No, making some extra. You're not supposed cash. to. So, United Airlines mm -hmm. fired more than 35 employees who were abusing their travel perks, like selling travel passes that are intended for friends and family. United employees at the gate noticed something fishy about a particular group of nine non-revenue pass riders. The company said in an article published on United's internal site and obtained by USA Today. And the three families who were traveling internationally stated that they had paid for first-class tickets, but they were on non-rev reservations and were unable to provide the names of the employees who, who had provided them the tickets. <laughs> the airline, bad boys music for this one, right? Yeah. Uh -oh. <laughs> the airline uncovered a brokering scheme where employees were soliciting pass travel privileges from their colleagues to put up for sale. And uh, the article continues on uh, some other other details. But uh, the bottom line is that, and, and it, it's so stupid, really, when you think, if you, if you get involved with this, at, at least at Acme, our travel passes actually have our in, an employee number as part of the pass ID. So it's so easy, at least at Acme, for them to say, oh, so tell me who, what employee gave you these passes and, and they can, cause they know exactly who mm -hmm. is associated with that, with that uh, pass. Um, yeah. The times I've ever done it in the past has been with extended family who have travel or benefits or buddy passes. But the way it worked for that airline was that employee had to book it for the passenger. So they knew exactly who booked it. Um, 
you know, it had to be done on their internal website. Mm-hmm. Yep. So there was now, no way to separate the, the two. Now, funnily enough, in my outfit, we have a type of uh, ticket that is effectively a um, firm ticket that we get at a reduced rate that we are allowed to sell to absolutely anybody. anybody. Huh. Oh, you fact, can sell them? Okay. Yeah. In fact, we can, we, we act like, uh, you know, uh, travel agents effectively. Oh. Uh, they don't have to be on any, any list uh, and you can uh, sell them away. But as it turns out, those tickets are rarely much cheaper than you would get uh, if you went on the internet and bought them there. I mean, uh, if they're, if the people you're buying the tickets for are on your list of uh, staff travel accompaniment people, uh, then you do get a, an extra redu- reduction. But uh, no, we have a system where you know we can sell tickets to people. Interesting. Everybody. I, um, I, I think that, well, I can really only speak for, well, United, uh, because obviously that's the way their system works. And my airline uh, is the same, that uh, that's definitely considered fraud and can get you fired. And apparently 35 employees were. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, the, these aren't um, non-rev-style tickets. These are... Actual positive tickets. space tickets? Yeah, they are. Oh, so it's they, nice. a different category of ticket. Absolutely. Really. Mm-hmm. Well, people that I say, you know, any, if anybody asks me to use my buddy pass or whatever, or if I offer them to anybody, uh, usually I don't offer them anymore because it really is always... Good luck actually getting to fly. Yeah, I always say, look, it's almost... The, the amount of money that you're going to pay for this pass is is almost as much as you'd pay for one of the really super cheap tickets out there. And at least you have a, a seat for sure. Mm-hmm. And if something happens, you know, if the uh, flight cancels or whatever, then you're protected. You know, you're just like anybody else that bought a ticket for that particular flight. Uh, if you have a pass, guess what? Sorry, you're out of luck, you know? So um, I, yep. I usually encourage them to seek out, you know, a, a low rate or low fare, whatever. Yeah, the only time I can really see it being um, like something you would might might even try to use for the buddy passes for most of the major airlines here in the U.S. that are usually have relatively full loads would be if it's something you really weren't planning on doing. So last minute, so the ticket prices went up and you have plenty of time and Mm -hmm. flexibility to travel. Um, So say you suddenly found yourself with a week off of work for whatever reason and you're going to try and go somewhere that's not a popular travel destination and it was last minute yeah good luck making all of those things line up in your life if that's you you're very fortunate (laughs) yeah you have to have kind of a chill attitude too regarding as you mentioned the flexibility of of what you know have realistic expectations Uh, but sometimes international travel um, at least with acme you're going to have a better experience better opportunity using these passes because you don't have all the business travelers usually doing the international stuff. I know there are business travelers that do mm-hmm. that, but you have more, uh, more tourists, uh, on those type of flights. And so anyway, for whatever that's worth. Um, and then finally, um, an update on Atlas 3591, the, uh, Amazon prime 767 300 that crashed outside of Houston. Um, just wanted to mention, um, and you know, I'm keeping track of, all the updates to the investigation. And I thought that this was significant to mention that uh, the NTSB put out a report, uh, interim report, 
uh, talking about some of the data that they uh, received from the flight data recorder. And let's see, uh, the flight data recorder data indicated that some small vertical accelerations consistent with the airplane entering turbulence uh, shortly after when the airplane's indicated airspeed was steady, about 230 knots, the engines increased to maximum thrust and the airplane pitched uh, or the airplane pitch increased to about four degrees nose up. The airplane then pitched nose down over the next 18 seconds to about 49 degrees nose low in response to a nose down elevator deflection. And then uh, Simon uh, puts in here editorial note, the sentence sentence originally read and then rapidly pitch the nose pitch down to about 49 degrees in response to column input. And when I read that, that first, before it said nose down deflection, it said column input. I'm thinking, huh? That means that the column, or at least it implies that the column was pushed forward and the nose went down 49 degrees, which is very nose low. But I'm glad that the NTSB um, corrected that and said in response to nose down elevator deflection. Now that seems to indicate that it wasn't necessarily tied to the input of the control column. Mm -hmm. So, and it said at no point did the stall warning or the stick shaker activate. So again, a little, a little clue perhaps, but it really, you know, leaves us hanging. We're not sure exactly. Well, why, why did the nose deflect like that? And why did they go 49 degrees nose low? So it's just all, all data points at this yeah. juncture. But it, it's one of those that kind of raises your eyebrows. You're like, what? Yeah, That's I actually weird. had not seen the um, the revised edited sentence there. So oh, did you see the first one? I saw the first one. I had not seen the revised one. Yeah, that first one going, what? Yeah. You know, and I'm glad that they, they must have gotten some immediate <laughs> response sure from they, that. And go, oh, oh sure no, that's not what we mean. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. So... Uh, hopefully we'll we'll learn more about this tragedy soon because uh, uh, we all hope to learn something from it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just a reminder here on the show that uh, when we talk about these accidents, incidents, everything else, um, you know, we we talk about what people are speculating, and uh, they don't always or sometimes never. Uh, actually reflect exactly what we are speculating ourselves personally or the show. Um, So uh, just keep that in mind. So hopefully we'll learn what happened here in this instance soon. And with that, I think it's time now for your feedback. Captain, incoming message. Let's start with... This from Alan, spelled just like our good friend, your pal, our pal, Captain Al. Isn't that what? Uh, I actually thought this was from him at first. I did I just too. Because uh... I've never seen anybody else spell their name like this. Well, and also the topic. Well, I put the topic. Uh, oh, there. you put it. Yeah. Okay, never mind. So that's my you were, fault. You were intentionally trying to trick me. Then I yeah, see who it is. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> you meanie. Uh, <laughs> really wasn't, but okay. Uh, Alan uh, Merch from Stockport. Stockport, UK? Uh, You're right. First time Stockport. Stockport, okay. Very recent listener to your show here, having only heard or just heard my first episode last week. Well, welcome, Alan, to the world of APG. Yeah, there's another Alan out there, so just watch out for him. Mm -hmm. Is that a common spelling of Alan in the UK? 
in in Wales. Wales. Yes. Oh, in Wales. Okay. Very uh, good. Is is Stockport in Wales? Uh, I don't know. But <laughs> well, if uh, if Alan Murch, you know what? Should, should I should I check on that while you're yeah? Please, uh, let's yeah. have an American's opinion. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I am I am pretty darn good with my geography here. So. All right. Let me see if I can guess. No, uh-huh. it's not. I mean, it doesn't sound like a Welsh it doesn't, name. But. Yeah, I don't know. But if you are from Wales, you'll be very happy uh, for your rugby team. Right now, it looks like 19-0. It looks like near Manchester. Oh, so that's not Wales. No. Okay. No, not yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what that means, but okay. <laughs> Captain well, Nick Viet, at airlinepilotguy.com. The, 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 yeah. Viet, the Viet Taf are always trying to expand their borders, you know. <laughs> okay. Wow. I come oh, to you. What were we seeing about politics earlier? <laughs> <laughs> I come to order, order. I come to you from a slightly different angle than a lot of people, perhaps, in that I've never really been an aviation enthusiast. <gasps> My father worked in security at Manchester Airport here. Oh, all I had to do is just read the next, <laughs> the next paragraph. Uh, in the UK for a great many years, yet despite that, and my being a very rational, logical person, I am terrified of flying. I have been on maybe a couple of dozen flights in my in my life, and despite this fear, or despite this fear, yet I find it never subsides. Anyway, thanks to the company I work for, I'm going on a holiday of a lifetime in about five weeks to India, flying via Muscat on Oman Air. So I am naturally both excited and panicking at the prospect to try and help combat the fear i thought listening to podcasts about flying could help hence how i stumbled upon your delightful show and how happy i am that i did even as someone with little prior knowledge of the field your discussions are wonderfully accessible and though i am still very much in fear of the upcoming journey it has diminished somewhat from listening to your show uh, keep up the great work and know that your words will be accompanying me and helping me on my upcoming adventure, Alan Merchant Stockport. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm so happy that, um, and, and it really makes a lot of sense. Usually people that have fear about things, well, not usually, a lot of times, uh, having knowledge about what's happening helps alleviate some of that anxiety. Um, and so, uh, that's a very clever thing. You know, somebody who really is not an aviation enthusiast, uh, just happens to stumble upon our, our show. And, um, I'm, I'm hoping that what we are saying here does help and it apparently it is helping, but if you need even more help, I put a note here on our note from Alan, uh, wanted to mention the other Alan, uh, captain Al, Al, Alan Evans. Um, he actually does something on the side uh, to help people that have uh, anxiety about or fear of flying. And so you might want to check out. Um, I, I, do you recall exactly what uh, the... Uh, Flight you, Fear Solutions. Flight Fear Solutions. I believe. Yeah. He's got a website I can find here. Right yeah. I'll give you exact and he's uh, kind of in your neck of the woods, I think. I mean, he's up that way. Uh, yeah. Right? He, he's Manchester way. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, he wouldn't be very far for you to have to travel. It might be something to look into, uh, Alan. Flightfearsolutions.co.uk. Okay. And we'll put that in the show notes. And um, anyway, anything else to say to No, I'm just Alan? glad we're helping. And despite yeah. all the, the subjects we cover, which often include aviation disasters, I'm hoping that the fact that we 
tell you how rare they are and right. uh, and explain why they occur and how they are unlikely to occur in the future. People learn all the time. I, I think that's brilliant. And um, I guess we could mention that there we're not the only aviation podcast out there. If you'd like, yes, we are. Yes, no, we are. We, uh, I don't know what you're so talking there's about. There's no others. Let's no. move on. No. <laughs> Other quality aviation podcast. Well, now you threw the quality word in there. I don't know. Fifty oh, percent. We're at least fifty percent. I said other. Other. I was including us in the. In no, the, there are some. Uh, uh, there are so many good ones out. In, you know, I'm afraid to start listing them all because I know, we'll I know forget I'll forget some of we'll Angry email from someone, but but we mention yeah. them all the time on mm-hmm. our show, uh, and they're all much better much higher quality podcast than this one. <laughs> um, way over 50% accuracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Neville says, Nev, one of the hosts of one of one of those wonderful shows, the PTUK, says, don't contact PTUK if you're afraid of flying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway. Okay. Um, thank you, Alan, for uh, writing in. And w- we hope that you're able to uh, contact Captain Al, and um, perhaps alleviate some of that anxiety. And if not, uh, I hope that listening to us will at least entertain you and uh, take your mind off of your anxiety. Indeed. Uh, yeah. And by the way, Oman Air is a pretty good airline, so I'm sure you'll have a fine journey. Excellent. I've actually been to, is it Muscat? Yeah. Um, when I flew in the Air Force, one of the places we'd go to sometimes uh, from Diego Garcia and atoll, an atoll out in the Indian Ocean was to Muscat um, because there is some uh, U.S. military presence there. And it's like one of the places that uh, at that time, I think it was the 6th Fleet, uh, kind of helping uh, them re, what do they call that? Restock, not restock. like Resupply. Resupply, that's a better word. Uh, the the fleet, and so we'd haul stuff from Diego Garcia up to uh, Muscat Amman, and uh, and then back to Diego. Uh, in fact, I one of the trips that we took up there, I ended up uh, having the opportunity to get a tour of the tower up there and talk with the. Uh, apparently, it's a it's a British territory. Is it still a British territory? Uh, like, Amman, uh, or, or at least that we, that base has some kind of UK. I mean, yeah, all the, we all, have very close links, and um, we used to provide a lot of Air Force pilots uh, to work with them, and they would uh, purchase uh, RAF aircraft. So, uh, but no, I think they're an independent okay. country. They just have very close military links. Because I know that all the guys up in the um, in the tower were had British accents, and uh, I think they were. Yeah. Uh, well, we we seconded a lot of uh, military per- personnel over there. A lot of their Jaguar pilots, okay. uh, RAF pilots, on a secondment. Oh, okay. I'll have to look that one up. All right. Um, getting on with number two, Brian. Finally, got the guts to leave feedback for the first time. You need I, guts to do that, apparently, or well, other things as well. I think. A couple of things I forgot to. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> a couple of things I forgot to mention in it, though. Um, so I guess should I read this first, or should we play his audio first and then read this? Uh, doesn't I don't think it matters too much. The stuff he left, I don't think ties in directly to. No, the it doesn't. Audio. So, so just go it, ahead and read that, and then. Okay. So that we won't forget to for come Nick, back to it. I loved the plain tale in episode three sixty three. Lived in Tulsa all my life. 
25 years, and never knew a little town in the panhandle was bombed by World War II aircraft. For Dana, I'm a fellow scuba diver and have an amazing love for it and the ocean. For Steph, I too am a Jeep owner, a 2015 Sahara, and may even buy that new Jeep Gladiator in 2020. Hmm. Jury's still out for me on the Gladiator. but What is the Gladiator? Not the one that's kind of the truck Jeep that they just... uh, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Pretty sure that's what they're calling it. All right. Well, he's not sure yet. Maybe you can talk with him and talk. Yeah, I, I, I hate when. Well, I don't really like when they're trying to turn the jeep into a pickup truck. Like, just keep it a, a jeep. Yeah, that's just is me that, personally. I know a lot one, of people love it. Hmm? Is that the one when you start it up? It shouts, "Gladiators, ready!" That's it. That <laughs> you're ready. That's, that's what happens if you honk the horn. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> So he says, no, I get- I've, I've had a lot of friends say they, they love it and eh, I, I might come around on it. We'll, we'll see. Okay. So I guess you could call me a flying scuba jeeper. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Perfect uh, description. Don't think that we're going to call you that, Brian. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. Brian sent us uh, feedback before and just not audio feedback. Um, so he said, I hope you, uh, well, maybe, maybe he hasn't. I, I just rec- recognize, I think Brian from Tulsa has sent us stuff in the past, but I could be wrong. Hope you guys enjoy the feedback and it isn't too choppy. I'm an amateur after all. Well, we all are, Brian. Okay, uh, let's play his audio feedback. Hey, APG crew. Uh, My name is Brian. I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's my first time calling in or uh, leaving feedback. Um, Just wanted to give a little background on myself. So currently I work for a convenience store company Uh, bolstered in red that's known for their quick trips and their good customer service Um, I believe we have locations where Jeff Dana is and uh, as well as Dr. Steph so you guys should be able to figure that one out Um, I started flying about a year ago in August I started working on my PPL Um, I soloed at 10 hours went for my check ride at 35 hours Moved right into instrument, uh, did that check right at 35 hours, which is right at 141 minimums. I've done everything at 141. Um, now I'm working on commercial. I've done my commercial cross-country stage, and now I'm into commercial maneuvers, about a quarter of the way through the maneuvers, I think. Um, just wanted to hit up on a little something that I heard in the last episode, which, by the way, great episode, guys. You guys had me busting up laughing on my overnights. I'm allowed to uh, listen to some audio, so I, I catch up on all you guys' podcasts uh, while I'm at work. From beginning all the way until now, I'm still working. I think I made it to to 200 and something, and then I'm keeping up with the ones you guys put out. Um, but great job on the podcast. But something that uh, one of your, uh, towards the end of the episode, one of the listeners gave in some feedback about uh, how she would just start in training. And I just wanted to touch on that, give my opinion. So, in my opinion, is that you get out of it what you put into it. Um, So, for example, the flight school I'm at, when I started, there was a student uh, that had just started his commercial the same time I started my PPL. Well, now that same student is a few lessons behind me. Uh, And that's not for lack of funding or or because he's not not as good of a student or doesn't uh, learn as quickly. It's because he simply just doesn't spend his time training. Um, he'd rather be out doing pleasure flights. So he does two or three of those a month, 
and flies maybe once a month uh, as a student. And I guess that works for him, but it's taken him forever to get this stuff done. Uh, on the other hand, I have uh, a female student, fellow female student. She has literally uh, gone uh, six months after I did is when she started and she's almost caught me, um, which I think is pretty incredible because I was told I was going at a pretty, pretty quick pace from all the instructors there. Um, so some of the stuff that I have for advice on, on how to get better faster is at home. I, I invested in an at home sim. So I've got a yoke, I've got rudder pedals and I use uh, flight simulator X FSX. And that helps me a lot because I can go from the actual lesson and go home and whatever I messed up on the lesson, I can go home and practice. So I don't have to worry about spending $200 uh, on a flight lesson to fix what I did wrong. I can go home and fix it for free. And it's not even that I spent $600 $800 on a gaming computer. I've had this computer since 2007 and it runs FSX just barely, but just barely is all I need to get it done. So, um, on a student pilot's budget, you get in, you get out of it what you go, what you put into it. So I just want to leave that feedback for you guys. Um, hopefully that helps any of the newer pilots. Um, to add on to that as well, I just thought about this, but you've got to immerse yourself into aviation. And what I mean by that is, anytime you're sitting around on the couch watching TV, think about what you could be watching instead. So when my wife's over there watching her TV show, I've usually got headphones in on YouTube watching uh, some type of aviation video. I love the air crash investigation series. Um, I'll also start looking at uh, flight instruction videos to learn. Um, so just keep that in mind too. It's a little advice for the newer pilots. Uh, not that I'm all that experienced, but that is what helps me. So keep the shows coming. You guys are doing a great job. I appreciate all the laughs. I'm sure everybody thinks I'm kind of weird at work laughing with my headphones in and I actually get laughed uh, I get asked why I'm laughing quite often so I uh, appreciate you guys, all you guys do Captain Nick Dana Captain Jeff and Dr. Steph you guys have a great one thanks Brian and what took you so long that was great feedback I'm sorry. those other people just don't know what they're missing out on you can tell them yeah, just About bring, laughing. bring one of those portable speakers and just like blow it out in the, just in the, in the QT. Oops. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, we could figure out uh, where you work, Brian, pretty easily. Yes. I'm, there is uh, one of your locations just down the street from me that yeah. I frequent. And that's 99% of the time, that's the station, the gas station I use to fill up my car. With, mm -hmm. Same, with same petrol. here. All right. So if it's a gas station, how come you don't fill up your car with gas? <laughs> I knew. I knew as soon as I said gas that yeah. we were going to have this discussion. Because, I mean, we have petrol stations because we fill yeah. up our cars with petrol. Yeah. We fill up cars with gas. It we, seems to uh, do the same uh, job. Gasoline. <laughs> I, think they're, I think they're closely related. Doesn't gas float away? <laughs> well, it depends on whose gas you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Some well, of it just Al's hangs. Hot air, isn't it? <laughs> I know Al's doesn't float away; it sticks around. Know, that's what I mean. Forever. <laughs> Heavier than air. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, um, I think it might be uh, time now to hear some more audio feedback. This is from Cosley. 
And I've met Cozley um, a couple of times at uh, meetups in the Baltimore, Maryland area. And apparently uh, he is now in Virginia. He is a, uh, a pastor, uh, a church pastor. And uh, he uh, sent in some audio feedback. So let's take a listen. Hey, PG crew, uh, Cozley Joseph here. Just wanted to check in with you guys after uh, not sending in feedback for a very long time. But I haven't missed an episode. I'm enjoying the show. Moved down to Virginia now, and I'm pastoring two churches now. So things are a lot very busy, but we're, we're getting along. Anyway, I wanted to send in a quick feedback. This reference, British Airways Flight 492, an Airbus flying out of London Heathrow. Um, that was rocking its wings. There's video of it on YouTube. You probably saw it already. And I was just wondering what could possibly cause that. I mean, initially looking at the video from outside the airplane, I thought perhaps it was pilot-induced isolation. But then from inside the airplane, it was it went on for quite some time. And I'm thinking that maybe a flight crew, you know, maybe one or two oscillations, you'd catch it. But it, the plane rocked for a little bit. So... When you guys watch the video, I'll try to link it from, from what I, where I found it on the web, but I uh, would really like to hear the conversation about what could possibly have happened to that flight. Keep recording. Enjoy the show. You guys have a wonderful day. I'll see you guys in Slack. Bye. Yeah, uh, there has been a lot of uh, discussion regarding this incident. And then uh, Liz is telling me now that it looks like we also have um, some more feedback tied with that same event. And this was, uh, as you said, Cozley said, um, British Airways flight, what, 492, I think he said. Um, there, uh, it was a flight that was going down to Gibraltar. And uh, Captain Al has been mentioned so many times that we, we're going to have to entitle this episode the Captain Al episode, <laughs> I think. Uh, but uh, he uh, has flown. This aircraft, the uh, not this specific one, but uh, this type of aircraft, an Airbus 320, uh, to Gibraltar um, many, many times, has a lot of experience with it. And um, I wish that I had been better prepared because I did have a discussion with Al at least a week ago, maybe longer, regarding this because there are some sources on the Internet. Uh, one person, uh, one uh, pilot that has a uh, YouTube channel that... Um, took on a discussion regarding this. And so basically just to kind of give you an idea of what was happening is that there was a video taken from the ground uh, pointed up at this uh, Airbus A320 initiating a go around uh, in Gibraltar and the wings were rocking uh, pretty <laughs> a lot um, uh, up to, I guess the, Probably the bank angle limit of what sixty-seven degrees is that right, uh, Nick? Uh, the limitation on the angle of bank, like sixty-seven. The, the the pilot can't force the aircraft more than sixty-seven degrees, but there's nothing uh, to prevent turbulence from okay. exceeding that limit. Um, I mean, and and so this person seems to think uh, this one that has a YouTube channel was thinking that uh, it happened because the autopilot was engaged, and um. And so I thought, oh, okay, I know nothing about the Airbus A320. Um, and it sounded reasonable what he was talking about. And then that's why I thought I'd contact Al regarding this. And I'm hoping I'll be able to find this uh, because he uh, gave a, 
uh, a nice explanation of what he thought had happened. And, and essentially, since I can't find it right off the bat, uh, he said that he thought that it was um, being hand-flown and that sometimes with a fly-by-wire aircraft, uh, as the uh, A320 uh, employs, at least its logic and everything else, um, that it's easy to get out of sync with uh, the input that you put into the system and the reaction, the system's reaction to it, and then like counteracting at the wrong point and just ma- just amplifying uh, the situation. I, maybe Captain Nick, since you're one who has been flying this type of control system for quite some time, maybe you could give us some idea about what you think may have happened uh, sure. in this instance. Yeah. First thing I'm going to do is poo-poo the uh, autopilot. That yeah. that will not demand uh, a, a maneuvers like that. And the second thing I'm going to say is that PIO is uh, a feature that almost any aircraft can be vulnerable to. So it depends exactly how the aircraft has been designed and uh, the uh, response rate of the controls uh, and uh, also how we as pilots perceive uh, what's happening when we start maneuvering an aircraft. So basically uh, what it is is if the frequency of the movement of the aircraft happens to coincide with our ability to work out what's going on and put in a control input to oppose it. Now, if that frequency is mismatched, then instead of putting in a control input to oppose, say, a wing rock, we will put in a control input at the wrong moment and it will amplify rather than oppose. So PIO has been around for an awful long time. It's not a a fly-by-wire feature. Fact is that the A320, uh, and I believe Al uh, mentions this, uh, can be susceptible to it in certain flight regimes, but it's by far not the the only aircraft. So what happens is uh, the pilot thinks uh, as the... uh, wing is going down, thinks he's putting in an input to raise it, but because of the rate at which the aircraft's moving and the rate at which the uh, controls are being deflected, he ends up actually putting a control input uh, in the wrong direction. And that is, um, we can confirm that because I've seen the video from inside the aircraft, and you can see as the wing is going down, the spoilers on that side are coming up. So those spoilers are coming up because the pilot's putting a a roll rate uh, requirement in, and he's put it in at the same time that the wing is going down. Uh, That's the the wrong way. He should be putting it in the opposite direction. And when you get into one of these PIOs, you get out of sequence with what is happening. And so instead of opposing the movement of the aircraft, you amplify it. And um, the, the... Funnily enough, the cure is very simple. You let go of the controls. <laughs> yeah. You just don't do anything. I, I was thinking exactly. the same thing. Why just let go of it? <laughs> yeah. But it's so you're talking about, you can think of it almost like as a, you know, like a sine wave going up and down and up and down, and you're just hitting the peaks and valleys in the wrong points instead of That's being exactly 180 right. degrees uh, out of phase, yep, you're yep. in phase with it. Yep. And it's all to do with the perception and yep. the rate at which the controls move and the rate at, rate at yep. which the aircraft's moving. There's a there's a lag a little bit built into it. Yep. And that lag just happens to coincide with the way our mind and our, and our ability to move our arms and counter it and think about what we're doing, they all coincide. Um, so yeah, uh, it's, it's quite counterintuitive to let go of the controls, but it's a common 
something you'll hear instructors say to uh, new Airbus pilots, uh, and it often happens in the approach configuration, uh, and they'll say, you're, you're over-controlling, let go of the controls. And there is a classic uh, example of this, and it's a, not a fly-by-wire aircraft. Do you remember the, I think it was an A300 getting airborne out of JFK, and the guys started using rudder to oppose what was originally a bit of turbulence they hit from the aircraft ahead, a jet upset. I don't know if you remember that. Mm -hmm. they, uh, and then the guy started using rudder, and he was pushing one rudder and then the other, and his uh, movements got bigger and bigger until eventually he exceeded the load capability of the fin, and sadly the fin uh, departed company with the aircraft and they had a, uh, a dreadful crash. Now that was also a form PIO. He ended up amplifying the problem, making it worse rather than counteracting what was originally just a small jet upset from the aircraft ahead. So these things happen and they can happen in all sorts of airplanes and that's it. We, we're all kind of aware of it, but I, I tell you, when you're in it, uh, a PIO, it's very hard to self-analyze and it's very hard to stop yourself doing it. Um, the uh, A340-600, when we first came in, the flight laws used to lead to PIO in the approach configuration in turbulence uh, at that speed. And it was very easy to start sort of weaving the airplane backwards and forwards in roll and, and not stopping the aircraft rolling. And they just rewrote the flight laws a little bit. And uh, lo and behold, that tendency just disappeared. So, uh, yeah, it, it's an interesting one. This, this certainly looks like that's what happened. They probably hit a bit of turbulence. And, of course, we all know Gibraltar's prone to it uh and some of it can be pretty severe but having got into that wing rocking because of the turbulence i think uh they probably uh made it worse than it might have been excellent and uh i did find finally my exchange with i was looking at the wrong thing uh the wrong um oh now we'll find out if al agrees with me will we? i think i think he will <laughs> so um let's see i hi jeff hope you're well i watched the video uh, that I gave him a link to that that we were talking about here, up until the app plugging. <laughs> okay, so what we have is a Boeing pilot who's never flown into Gibraltar. Oh, goody! <laughs> uh, the, so that the guy that does the YouTube channel is a is a uh, seven thirty seven pilot. Um, the majority of passengers on this flight will be hardened uh, Gibraltar travelers. In my experience, most of them know exactly what the wind limits are and are very prepared for a go-around, hence no real screams. I guess he's talking about the video of inside the, uh, the cabin when this was occurring. Uh, the approach onto 909 is a visual approach that would highly likely or unlikely be flown with the autopilot engaged. I can't speak for BA, obviously, but uh, at uh, Al's previous airline, the requirements were to be stable at 200 feet for this approach. The landing pilot, always the captain, is unsighted to the runway until quite late. Rotors, you know the, those uh, wind patterns that um, are in a in a twirling rotary fashion, are not uncommon at Gibraltar. But I still stand by my initial thoughts that this was PIO. Yay! He agrees. <laughs> the uh, fly-by-wire is very good, but it can't be predictive or instantaneous. And the temptation to make an input when a wing drops is strong. However, if one does, it is simply added to the flight computer's input, thereby introducing more roll than is desired. 
There are plenty of videos of crosswind go-arounds on the A320 where the roll element has been mishandled. On the day of this event, severe turbulence was forecast below 2,000 feet. Finally, I understand, but have never had it confirmed, that British Airways doesn't use nominated captains for uh, Gibraltar, and therefore this may have been uh, the Nigel's first bash at Gibraltar, which might explain why they diverted to Malaga, or Malaga, without a second approach. Ten minutes at Gibraltar can be the difference between a flight in a washing machine spin cycle and calm. <laughs> I've had rotors at Gibraltar when it's been windy, but never had to go around because they generally don't occur below 200 feet. However, the loss of 30 knots at 50 feet has caused me to go around. Yeah, that's a eye-opener, I would imagine. Yep. And he said, hope that helps. Yes, it did, Captain Al. Thank you so much for that. So, uh, Kosli, um, thank you for bringing up the um, that incident. And a lot, as I said, a lot of discussion about it on the internet. And uh, Nauru, uh, item number 11, also had a question about this. I'll just read uh, what he said. Hi, Captains Nick, Dana, Jeff, and Dr. Steph. My name is Anaru. Okay, now he gives me a pronunciation guide. R-Naru. Anaru. Anaru. Okay. Anaru. Um, and I hail from the great country of New Zealand. First, let's, first up, let's be clear. I prefer the Airbus to the Boeing and am especially excited about the recent introduction of the A350-1000XWB. Please don't let that prevent me from having your time. I <laughs> don't care. But that machine is on a whole new level, and I guess it won't suffer the same fates the 787 has, such as burning batteries and burning motors. Air New Zealand was hit particular, particularly hard by the engine issues, which saw unusual activities such as a 787-9 running between Auckland and Wellington. That's not a long flight, uh, which is roughly an hour gate to gate. Anyway, I was wondering about the Gibraltar flight, Speedbird 492, and A320 aircraft. And then he gives the link to the video below. Uh, but it looks to me like an oscillating fan, and I am astounded by the degree of oscillations as well as the duration. With all the cockpit automation, I would have thought this type of operation would be impossible. Are you able to shed some light on the incident? Thanks. Anaru. And yeah, I think we were able to with uh, the expertise of two professional Airbus pilots. And uh, yeah. Yeah. and I think we can safely say, despite the automation, it's still an aeroplane and yep. it will do aeroplane things. <laughs> there you go. I have, I, I do have a question for Anaru. You're running a daily half marathon. My gosh. Oh, I didn't read that part. <laughs> okay. He uh, says, I really enjoy listening to your, well, let's see. I'll back up. P.S. I am not a pilot, but I'm a diehard enthusiast to the point of obsession. I own a respectable 40 plus aircraft miniature airport and attached photos of the Yankee registered planes in the fleet, including the venerable 727. Woohoo! I really enjoy listening to your show and listen often while I am running my daily half marathon. Wow. Wow. A half marathon is 13.1 miles or 21 kilometers for those playing along at home. Um, he says, it certainly takes my mind away from the pains as I run. I can imagine. That is a lot of daily running. But Far exceeds what I have the time or ability to do. So my head is off to you. Like if you're experiencing pain, isn't that your body telling you to don't do that? Runners don't listen to those things. Okay. Just wondering. <laughs> and this from a doctor. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Now, is it's widely acknowledged? <laughs> I had this pain that's telling me I should probably quit what I'm doing. I'm going to pretend like it doesn't exist. Ah, uh, mm -hmm. okay. Very clever. 
nice collection there, isn't it? Yeah. He sent us a picture. We'll put that uh, in the show notes. You can see the photo of his Yankee registered planes. (laughs) I like that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, So we got that out of the way and let's, it's about the two hour point in the show. So let's do the best part of the show, which you all know what that is. Plain tales. Get your handkerchiefs ready. Oh boy. The old pilot's plain tales. The short life of Nierja Banot. Every week or so, we hear yet another story about a flight attendant being screamed at by an angry passenger. Just a day or two ago, I read about an educated lady, a lawyer, sitting in business class, who is now facing a jail sentence for being drunk on an airliner, swearing at, racially abusing, and then assaulting members of the cabin crew by beating them. Her behaviour was appalling, and it's ironic, considering the tale I'm about to tell you, that the crew she abused were from the Indian subcontinent. Nija Banot was a beautiful young lady, beautiful in looks and spirit. She was a model, attractive enough to truly stand out from the crowd. Brought up in Mumbai by a typical Punjabi family, her father was a well-known journalist and her mother a homemaker who looked after her husband and her four children. Rama Banot described of hearing of Nija's birth. Nirja was the fruit of our long prayers for a daughter, he said. It was September the 7th, 1963, at Chandigarh, where I was posted at the time. The maternity ward matron rang up to inform me that we had been blessed with a baby girl. I was very happy to hear this and gave her a double thanks. Nirja was taught in Chandigarh Sacred Heart School until the family moved to Mumbai where she graduated from St. Xavier's College. Her father went on, Nirja was a no-nonsense girl right from the start. Her family name was Leda, meaning God-gifted, full of mirth, pleasure and loving happiness. A school friend recalled, She was a loyal friend, even if we had a disagreement, she would always be the first one to reach out. And one of her older brothers said of her, Nisha was always a brave and tough woman. Even as a kid, she was the strongest of all three of my siblings. At a slim and graceful five foot nine and with a confident smile, Nisha started modelling, initially appearing in advertisements, but then featuring on the covers of magazines like Manorama. With her career in full swing, she accepted an arranged marriage, but after only a few months it came to an ugly end and she returned to Mumbai to take up a new modelling contract. Keen to make something of her life, Nisha saw an advertisement for one of the world's most glamorous jobs. Pan American Airlines was in full swing and probably the world's most prestigious airline. It absolutely defined the jet set, boasting an amazing list of exotic and glitzy and cosmopolitan destinations. Mixing with Hollywood's elite of actors, actresses, singers, politicians and world leaders, 
To get a job with them was a dream that many young women had, but it was rarely fulfilled. Their ranks of stewardesses, as they were termed back in the 80s, were filled by girls from good upbringing, nurses, models, actresses, and even a few exotic bluebell girls. Pan Am had decided to fly from Frankfurt to its Indian destinations and were recruiting all Indian crews to serve the passengers. Without thinking she stood much chance, Nisha applied along with many thousands of others, but she was singled out and became one of only 80 applicants that were accepted. Pan Am sent her to the United States for her training where she learned the skills that made the airline famous. She was taught deportment and geography, makeup and manners, silver service and leg crossing. The company had exacting standards and expected their crew to be able to prepare seven courses of French cuisine from scratch. They served dishes such as lobster, beluga caviar and fillet of beef cooked to taste. They used silver cutlery, fine china, and poured the best wines into crystal glasses. The crew had to wear their uniforms to perfection and learn to perform the clipper-dipper, a signature move to lower themselves and pour wine instead of leaning over, which was considered uncouth. This was, of course, on top of the safety and security training that they received. The company saw something special in Nirja, and she completed the course with top marks, graduating as a purser, someone in charge of the crew. Life couldn't be better for this lovely young lady. She was flying around the world as a glamorous stewardess and modelling in her spare time. She was barely 23. In the 70s, hijacking was becoming an international scourge. After the almost amusing classic Take Me to Cuba hijacks of the 60s, terrorists, particularly those from the Middle East, were realising just how much publicity and how many concessions they could generate for their cause by taking control of a large airliner. Often incidents ended peacefully and the crews were briefed to cooperate and negotiate to try to ensure their passengers' safety. However, governments became less and less likely to accede to demands and, as often as not, their special forces would storm an aircraft with the aim of shooting the hijackers dead. By and large, this tactic was successful, but the hijackers were learning what might happen should they not force their aircraft to land in a friendly nation. It was Thursday the 2nd of September, and Nisha had yet another prestigious modelling assignment. She reported for the photo shoot at 9am and returned home some 11 hours later. The hard day did not tell on her, though. She bounced about, saying that she had had the most satisfying shooting day ever with director Aisha Sayane, who she described as a highly talented professional. She had a light dinner and went to sleep after telling her mother to wake her up 90 minutes before the pick-up call from Pan Am at 1.15 in the morning. When her mother woke her up early in the morning, she washed and they chatted about her upcoming 24th birthday. Dressed and looking very elegant in her Pan Am uniform, she left for the airport. Nisha was operating Pan Am Flight 73 from Bombay, as it was then known, to New York with stops in Karachi, Pakistan, 
and Frankfurt, West Germany. The first leg of the journey went well, with Nierja operating as the senior purser in charge of the entire cabin crew of 16 on the Boeing 747-100 series, the pride of the Pan Am fleet. After their early morning departure from Bombay, they landed in Karachi just before 5am to restock and refuel the aircraft. 109 passengers disembarked and buses were loading the new passengers on board when two men, dressed in the sky-blue uniforms of the Pakistani Airport Security Force, drove up to the aircraft in a van fitted with a siren and flashing lights. They rushed up the aircraft steps, firing shots into the air, and were joined by others sprinting across the ramp, who shot and killed two Kuwaiti airline staff working there on a nearby aircraft. As they entered the Pan Am 747, they fired at the feet of the attendants there and forced them to shut the doors. Nirja, realising the seriousness of the situation, managed to get the hijack code word passed to the flight deck, as the terrorists stormed aboard with hand grenades, assault rifles, pistols and plastic explosive. In the cockpit, the two pilots and flight engineer did what their company instructions required of them. They needed to escape the aircraft so that it would be grounded in Karachi, so they climbed up through the hatch in the ceiling, used the inertia reel escape ropes to lower themselves down the outside of the aircraft to the apron, and ran to safety. Nirja was now the most senior crew member on board with nearly 400 passengers and crew in her care, but she stood with a hijacker's gun to her head. The hijackers were part of the Abu Naidal organization, a Palestinian terrorist group backed by Libya and were targeting Americans and American assets. Having seized control of the aircraft, the leader, Safarini, grabbed a stewardess nicknamed Sunshine and forced her to lead the way to the flight deck in search of the pilots. When they entered the cockpit, Sunshine could see the open hatch, but she said nothing in case the flight crew were still making their escape. Using Nirja to communicate, the terrorists demanded pilots to fly the aircraft to Cyprus, where they intended to order the release of Palestinian prisoners held there. She spoke to the Pan Am Pakistan director, Viraf Daruga, who stood on the apron with a megaphone, well within firing distance of the hijackers. The terrorists demanded that pilots be bought to fly the aircraft, and they were told that pilots were being sought. The minutes slowly passed, and then Safarini lost patience. He acted in the most vicious way imaginable, grabbing a 29-year-old American passenger, Rajesh Kumar, making him kneel in the doorway. The innocent man was then brutally shot in the head and kicked out of the aircraft to lie in a crumpled heap on the concrete twenty feet below. The hours passed, then, threatening to murder more hostages should their demands not be met, the terrorists instructed Nirja to collect the passports of all the passengers so that they could identify the other Americans on board. She and the other cabin attendants under her charge collected the documents, but then, at the risk of deadly retribution, 
they hid the passports of the remaining 43 Americans on board, under seats, in their clothes, and down a rubbish chute, so that the hijackers could not identify them. A British man, Mike Thexton, was dragged out instead, and made to kneel with his hands on his head, ready to be executed. Nia Bernat, despite her youth, kept a cool head. Even with all that was going on around her, she remained calm and in control, asking to be allowed to look after her passengers, who had all been crammed into the rear of the aircraft, filling the aisles and galleys. She kept a smile on her face and spoke in a quiet voice to try and ease the tension and aggression she faced. However, during the stalemate, she secretly removed a page from her manual that explained all the procedures for an aircraft door and placed it inside of a magazine and then handed it to a passenger near a door. She instructed him to read the magazine and then close it up, but refer to it later if needed. This page showed him how to open the exit door and deploy the slide down to the apron. Her bravery was clear for everyone to see, but after 17 hours, the stalemate was reaching its conclusion. Outside it was getting dark, and the auxiliary power unit, which had been providing cool air and powering the lights in the aircraft, began to run short of fuel. When it started to shut down, the situation on board changed dramatically. As the aircraft lights began to fail, the hijackers assumed it was a prelude to an attack by commandos, and they tried to blow the aircraft up. One man said a prayer and then fired at his fellow hijacker to detonate the belt made of plastic explosive that he was wearing, but luckily, in the dark, he missed his mark and only a small explosion occurred. Others threw hand grenades, but again, in a stroke of good fortune, several failed to detonate and some still had their pins in. Then they began firing indiscriminately into the crowded mass of passengers. Despite being wounded early in the melee, Nirja acted swiftly. Realising that she could help her passengers to escape, she armed and then opened an emergency exit. As the slide inflated, she must have known that all she needed to do to save her life was to jump onto it and descend into the darkness. But she stayed by her door, directing the passengers out to safety instead. The terrorists were emptying their guns into the innocent hostages, trying to kill as many as they could, but then they saw Nirja relentlessly trying to help the passengers out of the aircraft. That was when Safarini caught her by the hair and shot her point-blank. She had been shielding three children from the gunfire. Other exits had been opened, and many passengers escaped out onto the aircraft's wings, jumping down in the darkness. Eventually, the gunmen ran out of ammunition, and some cabin crew, who had been on the wings, bravely returned to the carnage inside the aircraft to try and help their passengers. The two who returned found a profusely bleeding Nirja 
still at her post of duty. She was lucid, but had lain there for nearly fifteen minutes. They carried her to the slide and safety, to be received at the other end by another member of the crew who helped her to an ambulance, but she died before any medics could assist her. She passed away only hours from her 24th birthday. The Pakistan Army Special Service Group eventually stormed the aircraft and seized the terrorists. Out of the 381 passengers from 14 nations, remarkably only 20 died, but over 100 were injured, some very seriously. On July 6, 1988, the five Palestinian men were convicted in Pakistan for their roles in the hijacking and sentenced to death, although their sentences were later commuted to life in prison. Now this part of the story isn't over though, as some years later it was discovered that the hijackers were no longer in prison. It seems a little unclear if they were released or escaped, but all remained free until the FBI caught up with their leader, Safarini, as he tried to take a flight from Bangkok to Jordan. After his extradition to the United States, he was convicted of 95 charges of murder, attempted murder plus many other charges, and sentenced to 160 years in jail. He remains in the Colorado Supermax prison in solitary confinement. On sentencing, Judge Sullivan told Safarini, You are a coward and cold-blooded murderer. This is better than you deserve. The remaining four men are still on the FBI's most wanted list with a $7 million reward on their heads, although one may already have been killed by a drone strike. Nirja Banat was honored around the world for her bravery as the heroine of the hijack, but no more so than in India. She became the youngest ever recipient of the Ashok Chakra Award, India's highest gallantry award for bravery during peacetime. She also received multiple posthumous awards for her courage from the United Kingdom and the United States governments, including the Department of Justice's Special Courage Award, as well as the Tamgari Pakistan from Pakistan, an award given for great human kindness. Anish Banot, Nirja's brother, later recalled a conversation between his mother and his sister. Her mother told her, If you ever find yourself in such a situation, escape, you just run away. Nirja scolded her mother, replying, Mummy, what will happen to the country if all mothers start thinking like you? I'd rather die than run. Wow. That gave me goosebumps. Yeah, it's a powerful story, isn't it? Mm. It is. Another uplifting story from uh, <laughs> the old pilot. I mean, from, right, certainly from the standpoint of, you know, the good in humanity and in yeah. the face of it is in a way terrible uplifting. things happening. Right. Yeah. The amazing 
uh, reaction behavior of somebody in dire circumstances like that is, is, uh, is uplifting. It is. Um, and th- thanks to, uh, Texas Jim for, uh, pointing me at that because I hadn't heard that story. I didn't know about this wonderful woman. Um, of course it, it happened quite a few decades ago now. So, uh, yep. And, uh, I think it's quite right that we should uh, remember her because, uh, you know, it's, people like that are, are rare. Uh, but surprisingly, uh, in my plain tales, I come across uh, again and again uh, amazing acts of heroism that the cabin crew have uh, done and rightly been recognized for. And every time we hear of them being abused and shouted at and screamed at by the passengers, it just you know infuriates me enormously. Yeah, all of us. Mm-hmm. Well. Agreed. Yeah, very well done again. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, sir. Yeah, I had not heard of her and her heroism either. I do remember that 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 um, event though, because I'm old enough to remember that. Um, that was the same year. Remind I was me, hired. what year was 80, 88. 80, 88. Okay. I think that's what you said, 86. right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think yeah the uh, the trial was in eighty eight. I think uh, the. Hijack was a couple of years before. Oh, okay. <clears throat> All right. Um, I guess we should move on with more feedback from our awesome listeners. Ruben sent us this regarding the incident at Courcheval in episode 362. I did the mountain raiding at Courcheval in 2017, which requires two hours of ground school and three hours duel with an instructor. So wanted to share a few insights flying into this incredible airport with stunning views. Oh, by the way, this is not Ruben now. I'm going to interject something. Um, I believe uh, Fred uh, Sampson uh, said something in one of our venues that the mountain wheel license is, yeah. he thinks, has something to do with the fact that you're giving a spe- given a special rating to fly in the mountains, and then there's like a, a mountain ski um, license and a mountain wheel license to differentiate the different uh, sorts of uh, landing or whatever landing and takeoff you might do. Ah, okay. So it, it refers to the what you've got attached on the undercarriage legs. <laughs> yes, I think so. Gotcha. Uh, it was confusing, but I'm thinking that makes sense actually now. Yeah. So thank you, Fred, for that. Okay. Uh, going back to Ruben. Firstly, going go around isn't really possible once established on short final. It is a case of land or crash land, as the approach is into a valley that narrows and is surrounded by mountains. <laughs> mountains, not to mention the gondolas and cable cars. And so the instructor was extremely focused on the approach speed, which had to be nailed every time. Secondly. The aiming point is the middle of a 40-foot snowbank below the runway, which really takes some getting used to. But the hardest part is the landing itself. If you look at the profile, the first 100 meters is about 12% or 7 degrees, and then steepens to 18% or 10 degrees. So rather than leveling out into the flare, you have to transition from a nose-down attitude to quite a positive nose-up attitude and get the wheels down in the first 100 meters. My natural tendency is to relax on landing, but that's not such a good idea here. 
as you need to apply nearly full power to get up the slope as you slow down very quickly and you wouldn't want to come to a stop for fear of rolling backwards or getting stuck. The profile view doesn't do justice to what it looks like from the cockpit. There are some other fun things about flying here. When the tower isn't manned, the altimeter setting procedure involves flying level with one of the ski lifts on the top of a mountain and the base leg is flown directly towards the side of a mountain, which is a little disconcerting. The procedure for an engine failure on takeoff is to fly down the mountain and the turn to land upwards on a pist or a piste? I'm not sure. Piste. Piste. Thank you. Uh, I don't know if I've ever encountered that word before in my life. Oh, not a skier. Lots of times. Oh, see, piste. I'm not a snow skier, so that's why. What did <laughs> you say? Or piste. <laughs> Never mind. I, I missed the joke. But That's okay. Don't worry about it. Are you really pieced me off, man? No, I'm saying <laughs> Steph's often pieced. Oh, yeah, she is. That's true. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, I wanted to return in our group aircraft, but outside of the winter ski season, the tower isn't manned for much of the year, and you need to be fluent in French to coordinate with other traffic. Simply stating intent in broken French isn't enough. Given landings and takeoffs are in opposite directions, and there are limited options for a go-around in the event the runway is occupied with departing traffic. Finally, jets do fly into Courcheval. It's not limited to general aviation types. See you all in Oshkosh. Yes, Ruben. Look forward to it. He uh, gave us a couple of... Um, of images here regarding the uh, profile view and also the uh, plan view of the approach, which I believe we've uh, seen before, and but we'll include this uh, this note uh, in the show notes so you can take a look at it yourself. Quite wild. It's, it's almost like trying to land on my driveway, which I know Jeff has seen. Yeah, it would be, <laughs> except for it's a little bit longer than your I mean, driveway. A little, a little longer, a little yeah. wider, but I mean, just the, the pitch of it yeah. is similar. That's, That's crazy. It is. It really is. Huh. Especially the part about keeping the power on. Keep the power on. So you don't you slide. you got to get to the top of the hill. Oh, and then stop before you, you know, what happened well, to the yeah. aircraft that we were referencing with the. I wonder what pilots ever thought of taking helicopters in there. Yeah. It, it's kind of logical, isn't it? Yes, I know. <laughs> so I mean, if I need to get there, I'll, I'll take a helicopter ride. No problem. At the very yeah. end of that slope, you know, the first part of the runway, I guess, if you're landing. Uh, is there like a steep cliff or something? I mean, what, what's yes. Okay. Off the end. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's no good. Uh, I think so. Yeah. You know, Jeff, uh, all the military fly, uh, fields we used to fly at, I'm guessing it's the same in the States it used to have a barrier. So a, a big net that would be thrown up on a pair of uh, extending arms. And if you were going to run off the end of the runway, it would catch you and, and hold the aircraft. And I'm just a little surprised there isn't, because of the limited options you have, that someone hasn't fitted one at this airport. By, by the sounds of it, it's just a, you know, a real sort of uh, tuckney hapney airport. No one really seems to care much about what happens to the aircraft going in there. Yeah, I guess the scheme must be that good. Or you're willing to take that risk. Uh, it looks beautiful. I mean, the only time I've seen the uh, the things that you're talking about with the poles and the nets are like on an aircraft carrier. <laughs> so not, well, it's the same sort of thing, but all the RAF stations uh, we've trained at had the similar sort of the, a device at the end of the uh, runway. Oh. It's called a barrier. I, I think it's the same on a Navy ship, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. 
It was fun. I mean, uh, one night our orderly officer was one of the students, got drunk and decided with his mates to drive up and down the runway and uh, misjudged his stopping distance and went straight <laughs> straight into the barrier. Imagine that after getting drunk and yeah. getting ah, exactly. <laughs> And uh, when they uh, when they they found out about it, went roaring around looking for the orderly officer. Uh, of course, they couldn't find him because he was uh, passed out in the front of this car. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! Whoops! Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, thanks, Ruben, for uh, more data points regarding the. Uh, Korshaval instant incident and uh yeah look looking forward to seeing you in Oshkosh definitely Ooh. all right number five John first question a few weeks ago in an SR22 at 13,000 feet I was experiencing a ground speed of 255 knots for an aircraft that typically flies at 160 this was quite a joy on the opposite side, I was doing a slow flight maneuver in a Piper Warrior with a 50-knot headwind at altitude, which resulted in a negative ground speed. So, I was curious, do you have any stories of some awesome head and tailwind experiences? Any personal records or flights that stand out? Um, Yeah, I've had over 200 knots in an SR, uh, Sirius SR-22. Um, at not at 13,000 feet at actually a much lower altitude. So that was actually kind of exciting. We are like, look at that tailwind. This is fantastic. Um, I think the slowest flight I ever took was in a, yeah, we were in a Cessna 172. It was a night cross country from Eastern North Carolina down to Myrtle beach and back. And we had a whopping tailwind on the way there. We were like, wow, we got down here in like 40 minutes. That was fantastic. And unfortunately, the winds had not abated for our return flight, which took nearly three and a half hours. Um, <laughs> so that was a long evening, considering we just went for dinner. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the burn of that. Uh, yeah, if you're going to fly in the same air mass, basically, like when we went up to uh, I don't know where we went. I think Pittsburgh or whatever. Uh, my last turnaround on this trip, it was pretty quick. And then on the, actually a better example would be the trip up to Albany from Atlanta. Uh, we made it up there in record time and, uh, we were quite early, but then we knew that going back was going to be a different story. It was going to be a much longer flight than normal. And sure enough, it was, um, yeah, I think the, the biggest, uh, tailwind that I've experienced was when I was flying the 141 in the Air Force and we would routinely be flying from Japan to the west coast of the United States. And during the time of year when you get the really strong jet stream cores in the lower uh, latitudes, um, you know, we, we can go nonstop in the 141 instead of going up to Elmendorf uh, Anchorage uh, on the way back home. And I think I recall seeing something around 200 knots of jet stream wind up there. So I don't know what that equated to as far as a ground speed, because our indicated airspeed on the uh, 141 wasn't that high. I think we were doing like 0.74, which is a normal mock speed we'd use on, on that airplane. But uh, it was still impressive to see that much wind. I'm sure that you've seen a lot of wind um, 
uh, Nick, and and I'm not talking about Captain L. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, wow, we just keep coming back to the same. You just same can't help but do it. No, 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 no. I, I funny enough, it it never really you know crosses my mind. Occasionally, you'll see more than 600 knots ground speed, but uh, I don't get excited about that because it's ground speed, and we know that it just so happens to be that we're in a you know a fast moving jet. I get a bit depressed when I see that amount of headwind because uh, you know all of a sudden your ground speeds are you know 380 knots or something you know it's going to take forever uh, so you order yourself another coffee or perhaps another meal and sit back and think well we're going to be late uh but no it doesn't uh, I, I i can't get excited about all these people who go Woo, look at how fast we're going yeah yeah no. Blah, it's always a little blah. disconcerting though when there's strong winds um close to the ground and your ground speed is quite slow there because it just you look out the window and you go hmm not really going anywhere <laughs> <laughs> yeah nothing is nothing's moving nothing, nothing's changing right. the scenery is still the same and then you start looking at the fuel thinking oh I wonder how long yeah, i yeah, sit here doing yeah, nothing exactly and <laughs> exactly. uh, no. i mean the only time uh, it's ever really worried me i was a very young lad and i was uh in a glider and um we'd uh, got able on I got able on solo and I've been following a thermal and of course you the thermal moves with the wind and I drifted quite a long way away from mm. the airfield uh downwind and of course when I started getting cold feet I wasn't very experienced at gliding I pointed back towards the airfield and you know selected the standard cruise speeding of about 30 knots and uh, realized I was just going down. I wasn't going forward at all. So I, I started to dive the aircraft, and I don't know what the VNE of that old Zedberg was. It was probably around 50 or 60 knots, but I was barely making progress, realizing that I might not actually make uh, my point of origin. Uh, and luckily, I just scooted over the airfield boundary and landed on a very remote part of the airfield that no one had actually seen me land. So I then <laughs> had to abandon my aircraft and stroll Take a mile a and a half. Exactly right. Uh, to find somebody with a Land Rover to come and drag me back to the flight line. But uh, yeah. no, no one seemed to worry about it, but I had been in a cold sweat for a good 20 sure. minutes. In gliding, you refer to it as, as an off-landing like we do in parachute jumping? Yeah, but we're, as students, as, as young cadets, we weren't allowed to do that stuff. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, no one's really aiming to do that, right? <laughs> Just, no, no, I guess you get a bit too downwind and you go, well, that's not going to work out. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Uh, John, second question. When I fly in GA aircraft, I usually end up with a sunburn. I believe that's because the windows are not tinted and UV slash IR waves come inside the cabin. It gets bad enough that during the summer I wear sunscreen or long sleeve shirts. Do you guys, gals, worry about that? Is this an issue on the big jets? I don't think I've ever had a sunburn in a GA aircraft, but I also don't burn easily, so I've not worried about it. I think that's just specific to me. I, I don't think there's a lot of UV gets through ours. I mean, I wear uh, glasses that they they darken under UV, and they barely change uh, color, even when if I'm looking straight at the sun and 
in uh, in my aircraft, Jeff. Said it about yours. Well, I uh, fly an open cockpit aircraft, and, <laughs> and, and I get sunburned all the time, and I yeah, have to wear a hat yeah. to keep my you know hairs from falling out, and and a scarf, and a, and goggles, yeah, goggles. Yeah. yeah. In yeah. fact, yeah, here, yeah. I think I have my. You have that right. Yeah. This is actually part of his uh, his uniform. You, you may right. not have realized this, but yeah, I got uh, I got some of that stuff right here. Um, this keeps me all <laughs> yeah. nice and. Or my nice goggles. My goggles are uh, on the, another part of the room, so I can't get those. But that's, that's a good look, I think. Very nice. I'm sexy yeah. with the ladies. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. They love that. <laughs> that was a gift from uh, Captain Nick, by the way. Thank you, sir. Um, <laughs> well, just very practical. You wearing it. Not yeah. sure what you were uh, implying with all that, but uh, <laughs> okay. Um, but you know, ironically, and I don't have any data to back this up, except that I think I remember reading something about this quite some time ago. That ironically, the older jets actually have better UV protection in the windshield um, glass. And lead windows? Uh, yeah, lead. That might be why. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of hard to see out of them, but you're getting protected, that's for sure. Uh, but again, I could be completely wrong about that. You would think that the, the more modern airplanes would have better UV protection than the old ones. So might have something to do maybe with the thickness. Or something like that. That's yeah, or the amount said. of plastic that's in it. Because I suspect the glass is what changes the wavelength and protects you from UV, whereas plastic probably does less. Right. Yeah. That so might be why. Wait. Yeah, there's probably more plastic and the and lighter weight um, windscreen yeah. material uh, in use on the modern airplanes. I I would say so. I, I, you see, I I. I thought you actually had stained glass windows in yours, Jeff. Not just <laughs> that they did. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're stained, all right. <laughs> okay. Fair okay. Enough. Maybe next question. <laughs> okay. John uh, has a few more questions. Yeah. Uh, could a GA pilot be considered a captain and wear the white shirt with the epaulets? Is there a difference between the gold and the silver white ones? <laughs> Captains are typically four bars and first officers are three, but I've seen one and two bars as well. Uh, any idea what they represent? And uh, so I, I, I th I'm thinking, hmm, I, I don't know if there's really any reason that you couldn't be considered a captain uh, wearing uh, or flying a GA airplane. And I looked up uh, captain in Wikipedia, which, of course, everybody knows is absolutely correct about every single thing. Not. Mm -hmm. um, it's a, a captain, airlines, senior person or officer, usually and lawfully in charge of an aircraft corresponding to the work condition of pilot in command. And so if you take that particular definition, did you hear that? Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. Um Oh, this Apple News thing is, on my MacBooks is just it's driving me nuts. I don't know how to turn it off. I need to figure out how to turn off the notifications for that. Hey, so I have a uh, so this just came up in a different forum um, that I follow recently about um, actually flight schools and their instructors wearing yeah uniform like airline style uniforms with bullets and bars and it, the whole um, the point that most people were making was it's just a way. For people to recognize who's who quickly you know who's um and set a little bit maybe more of a professional standard and tone because sometimes when you dress the part you feel more of the part and you're more likely to follow standard operating uh, procedures and guidelines so um it was just a way to be a little bit more professional in terms of the what the school was trying to do or those schools that do that and also provide a quick way for students to recognize um, who the instructors are and levels of seniority of instruction. So okay. That was all. 
but in terms of me, you know, getting in my G aircraft and dressing up like an airline. She does captain. it all the time. I've seen her. Every flight. <laughs> Every flight. She puts on like six or seven stripes. Yeah, I mean I no one there's no no one telling me how many I can actually have. <laughs> that reminds so, me of a guy on YouTube. I know, I'm just I'm thinking of that guy. Yeah. <laughs> and he had like three, two or three epilepsy. He kept adding on more each, on yeah. throughout the video. <laughs> we should probably find that video and post yeah. it because it's also a, a nice reminder of how to fly a pattern. Um yeah. that was his whole Oh, that that was a very video. funny video. In fact, yeah. uh, maybe maybe we can use that as the uh, episode uh, uh, picture. <laughs> yes, perhaps. <laughs> that would be good. It's interesting, though. Um, when I fly a check ride with another captain, uh, it's not written down anywhere, but it's common practice for the captain who is actually in charge of the airplane uh, to wear his stripes, and the other captain will often take his bars off and uh, just fly with nothing on. Hmm. So there's no confusion with anyone that walks into the cockpit or with the cabin crew, etc., as to who is the captain. Because there can only be one commander of the aircraft. You can both hold the rank of captain, but it's a little bit confusing if uh, um, someone keeps walking up to the wrong captain and giving them information, and they have to go, well, you're talking to the wrong bloke, keep speak to him. Hmm. Uh, but that's, that's only... Uh, I've seen it done on our airline, and uh, I, I think that's quite a nice thing to do, so there's no doubt. Yeah, that's interesting. We don't do that uh, at all at uh, Acme. <clears throat> now, and as regards the other numbers of uh, stripes, uh, in our outfit, um, three stripes is for a senior first officer, two is for a first officer, and we don't – oh, we did once have a single bar, and that was for a cadet pilot – Nowadays, I think we have a one and a half, so one and a very thin one for our cadet pilots. Interesting. Um, at Acme, um, the only time I saw, well, no, I take this back. I was going to say something that was actually not right, which how unusual would that be? Um, <laughs> yeah. The uh, Even when you were a flight engineer, which was the uh, first entry-level position that you would have back in the uh, 80s and uh, early 90s when we were flying the 727, uh, was, even the second officer would wear three stripes. So, And it probably to kind of make the point that if I, maybe if we had a professional flight engineer uh, program at ACME, maybe they would have worn two stripes. But uh, because at ACME Airlines, all pilots in the cockpit whether they were a flight engineer or a first officer would wear th you know they're pilots they're rated pilots um i guess that was probably their thinking but so at acme i've only seen three and four stripes never two or even one so a little oh, bit okay. different i think a lot of it has to do with um new contracts and how they want to pay new joiners less <laughs> so well I, we I, when I got hired I wore three stripes but I was on um, probationary pilot pay the first year and the B scale so I my pay was you know double notched lower double uh, secret probation yeah <laughs> but we still got to wear our three stripes so that made us feel okay. like okay even though we're not making a lot of money you know we're still wearing three stripes so Fair that, that compensates for it not yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway I, I uh, digress um and then the fourth question, I was curious about what your aircraft could really do. Say, for example, 
uh, is it just the captain and the first or it is just the captain and the first officer in a light plane with little fuel in the tanks? How fast could the Mad Dog climb if you really pushed it? How fast would a 340, 350 climb? What's the climb rate, say, to 10,000, 20,000 or above? Hmm. I think back to those displays of the A380 and the A350 at Farnborough in terms of what an aircraft can do when it's um, trying to show off a little bit. Yeah. Pretty, pretty impressive. I, I've seen 6,000 feet a minute rate of climb. But, uh, you know, it's only when you're doing it, uh, you don't do it very often because uh, you're very rarely in that circumstance. And usually the departure requires a level off at only three or 4,000 feet often. And so you don't get much of a chance to practice. <laughs> right. And usually when you see those extremely high rates of climb, um, your energy, you can feel it, at least people who have flown high-performance airplanes kind of understand or get the... You, you could just feel the airplane losing energy. You know that at some point you're going to have to decrease the rate of climb or else you're going to be descending very rapidly. Yes. <laughs> I think I was more impressed at how uh, the slow flight characteristics of the, what was it, the A350? Last time we were at Farnborough, did you see that display? Oh, yeah. You guys, wasn't it like 107 knots or something? Yeah. I mean, it just looked like it was. Very high angle of attack. Yeah, but it was, I thought that was impressive. Yep. Yeah. But uh, yeah, on a, on a really, really cold day and a very, very light airplane, even with reduced thrust, uh, you can see some pretty impressive rates of climb, uh, even in the good old Mad Dog. Um, and uh, sometimes we'll be climbing out and air traffic control will say, you know, we need you to expedite your climb to, you know, through some altitude. And you know, you can you can really put the speed back and the thing will raise the nose and really get a, an impressive rate of climb. But the thing you have to consider when you when you do that is how close are you to your level off altitude? Altitude. <laughs> because the autopilot Whee! can only do so much. And uh, I've seen people do that where they'll they'll go to uh, the speed override. And I'm thinking, well, you'll have a couple thousand feet to go before we're supposed to level off. And then I see the climb rate going like through the roof. And I'm thinking, this is not going to work. And, uh, <laughs> you, know. you just sit back and, and watch say, it happen. That's mm. usually when I normally we say one, you know, the make a call 1000 feet below the level off altitude. But if I see a situation like I just described, I'll say 2000 to go. Yeah, 3000, you know, like 1000. Like, uh, why is he saying 2000 to go? Yeah, maybe like, you know. Look, yeah. we're not going to level off if you keep this up. This is my subtle hint to you that you may want to pay attention to. Right. How and of course, in the, that. in the crowded airspace we fly, doing those sort of rates of climb, we're going to set off the TCAS warnings of other aircraft because, and mm -hmm. that is just a, it's just a very rude thing to and, do. And that's yeah. another thing. That's another thing that we pilots out there have to consider when you know we know that there's traffic, maybe only going to be a thousand foot separated from our. Uh, eventual level off altitude um and you know instead of keeping it it's in, looking uh, at those closure rates right and it has no idea what your intent is it doesn't know right. you're going to level off or intending to level off at a certain altitude and so what i'll usually do is i'll take it out of the vertical nav mode and put it into a vertical speed mode and then uh, the throttles will you know come back and keep the speed that i've told it i want it to fly but my rate of climb now is reduced so i'm not going to set off somebody else's uh tcas yeah, exactly. That's Heck, if you don't have to worry about it, just climb right on up there as quick as you can and then push forward and everyone in the back Ooh. will really 
Have a good yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can you can take your uh, your your drink and then just let go of it. And it just kind of stays there and yeah. pretty cool. <laughs> okay. Um I think we're okay to continue here. Uh, 15 minutes. 15 left. minutes. Okay. The 15 minutes. And like warning. 20 feedback items still. Yeah. Sorry, of course. This is our typical situation, right? Um let's see. Fitz James. Okay. Uh, I was just making an observation of a trend that's becoming a bit more popular these days. I wanted to get your thoughts on what I think is an issue. Let me set up the scenario. Aircraft's getting pushed back or final taxi to the parking spot. Through the windows, passengers can observe or record a ground marshal dancing away as he or she is guiding the aircraft. Now, most people don't think about it, but these folks are down there for a real reason, not for entertainment. Lately, we've seen quite a few ground incidents with aircraft clipping each other. I have no clue if there is a direct connection with bad marshals or not, but my point is that they should uh, not, and he says not all are guilty, really just focus on the job and not trying to get those social media 15 minutes of fame. Now, before anyone thinks I'm being too judgmental, I want you to think about all the times we've had an, uh, had accident investigations blaming the pilot of just going through the motions of speaking out the checklist items but not actually doing them or verifying the steps. That's what I'm worried about. I'm worried that they're, they are merely performing the ground guiding motions without actually observing because they are too focused and distracted with dancing. I think ground movement for them should be just as critical and sterile as pilots below 10,000 feet rules. Please let me know your thoughts from your side of the cockpit door. Just like everyone else, I would like to thank you all for these years of amazing aviation entertainment. I'm moving back to the USA this year, and I fully intend to make it to Oshkosh. Yay, another one. Shameless plug. Contact me or check out my aviation page on Instagram. And his Instagram ID is at FitzTheSpotter. F-I-T-Z-T-H-E-S-P-O-T-T-E-R. Thank you, Fitz James. All one word. All one word, yes. Um, I agree with James. I think we probably, I mean, Fitz James, I think we all probably do that... I don't. I don't think it's an, um, a coincidence that these uh, collisions on the ground, especially during pushback, uh, are are happening uh, at a higher rate than they used to. The last time I was on a uh, aircraft, we were pulling into the gate, and the marshal was like still running out to do their job as we were clearly well into the parking space. But I've seen them. Like, Okay. Uh, like know, by the time you get there, you're, you're not going to have anything to do. <laughs> I, I've seen marshalers, you know, like holding their wands up straight up, mm -hmm. you know, like th th this wing is clear. They're not even looking at the wing. They're just like looking, walking and looking forward. Um, and then I'm looking out going, um, we're going to hit that thing if I keep on going. So I stop, you know, and finally they turn around and go, what's going on? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. You're not clear. Um, I've also seen conversely wing walkers out there like doing the X thing and the and guy no pushing the airplane is still pushing the airplane, apparently not looking at him. And then I say, uh, I think the guy tell him wants us to stop. Oh, yeah. I don't know. What do you think, Nick? Uh, yeah. Uh, so many of these events are avoidable. And uh, I've seen videos of uh, the wing walkers. And they're a bit like you sometimes see uh, the guys on an aircraft carrier and they're doing pretty fancy moves. But uh, I suspect they're a lot more disciplined because that's a damn dangerous environment. And if there was any danger whatsoever, some uh, hairy sergeant would be uh, 
on their neck pretty quick. But um, no, uh, there are just too many ground incidents occurring. And I think if you're going to dance your way out with the aircraft and not really pay any attention or just walk out there with um, your mind in neutral, uh, e equally bad, uh, you, you've got a really important job to do. Uh, you know, that aircraft is worth more mi millions than all the wingtip walkers in the world put together will ever earn, and um, me included. Uh, so, uh, you know, people just don't, I think, appreciate how important their job is, and they often pay lip service to it, and I wish they wouldn't. Yeah. Well said, sir. Well said. Cameron, item seven. My name is Cameron Berigree, and I have been listening to the show for over a year now. I'm a 17-year-old who is training for my PPL uh, before I head off to Lewis University in Chicago for aviation flight. Your show has kept me motivated to follow my dreams of becoming an airline pilot. Oh, good yes. man. Mm -hmm. Just wanted to reach out regards, uh, in regards of a question that, I that was raised in episode 363. I have a friend that is an engineer at Airbus. I asked him if the A380 ever broke even and got to the point where it was making money for the company. He responded with, we had a break-even point in 2015 and 2016. However, the following years, with lower deliveries and other uh, orders, kind of went the negative direction uh, with the non-pacing demand of a four-engine aircraft. While some asked us to investigate a twin-engine variant, it wasn't economically feasible. I also asked what new aircraft were coming here soon in the near future, to which he responded the 330neo, the 350-1000, the 321XLR, and the obvious A220. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Keep spraying those chemtrails and keep the blue side up. Happy... Oh, shh. Cameron. Come on. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'm not in the financial services industry or whatever. I'm not, I'm not a uh, person that understands profits and losses and spreadsheets and all that kind of stuff. So you got to kind of, you know, rely upon those who uh, do this for a living. And um, I, I don't know, you know, that could be that the uh, three, 380 actually did. Um, I mean, it makes make a some kind of sense. Yeah. Um, and if it continued that, 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 that direction and the order book was intact, perhaps it would have made a lot of money. Uh, but unfortunately it went the wrong direction there toward the end. You know, it's yeah. like anything in life. You have to take a gamble a little bit on what you think is going to happen in the future and all signs can point one direction and then it can change just as quickly. So um, that's kind of the price of doing business sometimes. Yeah, there's so many inputs as well into uh, the value of an aircraft, not just its original purchase price, but what you're then going to charge for uh, providing spares in the future, servicing, et cetera, et cetera, all the ongoing costs of maintaining it. A lot of those go back to the manufacturer, and in fact, they often sell the aircraft at a, at a loss, knowing that they will make up the money they, they need to make a profit in the future. Um, so it's all way too complicated for the likes of me. I haven't a clue. Yeah. And regarding the uh, twin engine variant of the 380, they tried it, but they could never get the thing to take off. <laughs> yes. There's, there's a whole really bunch of them crashed at the end of Toulouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just the, the runway requirement was just way too long. Yeah, yeah, they, don't, yeah. they haven't made any of those four-mile-long runways yet. Yeah, yeah. No. We, we suggested a ski jump, but they didn't want to go for that. <laughs> the, yeah. the Courcheval was a little <laughs> yeah. impractical. Yeah. To be fair, though, uh, I've heard people suggest, oh, why don't they just 
put a twin engine version on. Well, the aircraft's just made of the wrong stuff for a start. It, it's too heavy. It hadn't really progressed far enough into the carb composite uh, style of building aircraft. If they were to build it again now, I suspect uh, they could possibly uh, have a two-engine variant. But we know the problems that uh, Rolls-Royce are having producing the, the Trents that are powerful enough to uh, power twin-engine airplanes. There is a limit to what you can do. So uh, I think we're getting close to it. And unless some uh, engine manufacturer comes up with some way new technology, um, I don't know. I don't think we'll, we'll get much bigger. I have two words. Compressed air. Oh, compressed air engines. Yeah. Think about oh, it. Okay. Or big giant rubber bands. Oh, I like rubber bands. What about like a catapult? Ooh. Well, I was thinking electric. I was thinking you could have a an engine powering a generator and then you could have electric motors in the engines. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, that was a winning thought for that is. For that's Captain that's a good one. There, so. <laughs> I like it. That's a great idea. <laughs> All right. And the other thing is, you don't actually need to go forward. You could just have an airplane that climbs up and hovers, and then you could let the Earth spin underneath you until you get to your destination, and then you just come down and land. I don't think Nick has a good understanding <laughs> of how everything works. Everything? But it's certainly... Mm -hmm. anyway. just, <laughs> yeah, because right, right now we're all going about 17,000 miles per hour. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't, really wouldn't be hard. Yeah. I wish somebody had thought of that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, eight. Ham Radio Jim, our friend. Uh, Ham Radio Jim. Um, writes in to say, uh, I enjoy listening to APG podcasts. Or to say I enjoy listening to APG podcasts is an understatement. It's indeed an honor that you share your aviation world with us in the APG community. Once again, something on the show has taken me back to my days at the Air Force Flight Test Center at Edwards Air Force Base. Captain Nick's APG 357 plane tales ended with a comprehensive history of the F-104 Starfighter. Please allow me to add just one more piece to the story. Now on a pedestal in front of me, uh, excuse me, now on a pedestal in front of the Air Force Test Pilot School is the NF-104. Captain Nick said the F-104 looked like a spaceship. Well, indeed, the NF-104 actually is a spacecraft. I invite you to research this yourself to learn all about it. But in a nutshell, the Air Force needed tr to train its future astronauts in spaceflight techniques. So they decided to attach a rocket to the tail of this otherwise normal F-104. Then they installed a reaction control system in the nose. This enabled pilots to simulate controlled spaceflight when they were flying stratospherically at 85,000-plus feet, courtesy of the aforementioned rocket engine. In addition, yeah. In addition to training astronauts, the Air Force couldn't resist breaking a few records, like 120,000 feet with this jet rocket. But that's another story, and it might just be worth another plane tale. Thanks for the memories all. 7-3 from Ham Radio Jim. And I did look up. Uh, he piqued my interest, so I did some searching online and uh, came up with a couple of images one being a uh, nf-104 almost nearly vertical with the rocket engine on the tail um ignited and it's uh, impressive isn't it it is i think it says what six thousand pounds six thousand uh, pounds of thrust yes thrust and a, and, a, and the interesting thing it used a 
Jet JP4, which is uh, sort of close to uh, Jet Jet A fuel, uh, and uh, hydrogen peroxide uh, blend for the rocket fuel. So that was one of the reasons uh, that it was kind of uh, you know it made made some sense for this particular airplane because rocket fuel is uh, an entirely different thing, I think. Um, and highly toxic and all that kind of stuff. And then it's interesting in this other graphic here that it shows where they placed the, um, what do they call it? The reaction nozzle reaction control system or whatever reaction yeah. nozzles. Like nozzle. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's cool. Yeah. Because I guess the air is so thin up there that you need these to actually mm -hmm. position the attitude. Yeah, I don't the have a lot of, uh, authority with the thin air. Yeah. No, and those tiny little wings would have been much use anyway. They're not much use at sea level. <laughs> <I know. laughs> if you get fast enough, you, they work. Oh, yeah. yeah that's, that's, the, that's the key. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> By the way, uh, uh, Ham Radio Jim reminds me that uh, in my uh, retirement, I'm thinking of restarting my um, love of amateur radio or ham radio as it's called. And I know we've got a number of visitors, uh, listeners, sorry, who uh, are amateur radios, ham radio uh, devotees. So uh, it would be really nice to set up an APG radio net uh, for all of those of us who do this. So oh, yeah. anyone got any inputs on that as to uh, what frequencies we might use and when we might uh, get together? Uh, I'm looking at buying uh, some more kit in the next uh, uh, few months, so that would be great. Well, Columbus, Carl, Mississippi... Uh, Kilo 5 Alpha Romeo November says to you, 7-3. Wow, 73 is to you, sir. Yeah, he's in the chat room. I, I think you're right. I think there probably are a lot of folks that listen to the show who are hams. Well, I'm a ham, but it has nothing to do with radio. <laughs> um, but uh, that looks like a very cool hobby. A lot of people kind of reacted that way who listened to your wonderful crew log, uh, which is available to those of you who are uh, part of the Coffee Fund Cadre or the Coffee Bar Club or whatever you want to call it. Uh, Nick did a wonderful uh, in-depth um, explanation of high-frequency radio, HF radio, on the uh, airplanes that we fly. And uh, yeah, a lot of people wrote in and said, you know, sounds like Nick is a ham radio operator. And uh, yeah, so so yeah, you, you do have your crazy. license? I, I have. I'm lapsed currently. Okay. Uh, the license keeps going, but I'm I'm not active. I don't have a radio right now. In fact, okay. I gave it away to a youngster who was taking up the hobby. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm just trying to persuade my wife that a new retirement present would be a nice new uh, ICOM uh, 7300 uh, HF radio. So I might just do that. Well, Liz is telling me that uh, we are now beyond the three-hour mark. Um, but I don't want to stop yet. Cool. Can we go a little bit longer? You're the boss. Yeah. You guys you're the okay boss. with that? I mean, yeah, I, easy. I, I don't mean to go for another three. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> but um, there are some. One, um, it, it, this will be a quick, quick one. Uh, this is, from, we are having trouble uh, pronouncing uh, this gentleman's name. He's from Dublin. And uh, so he sent in this audio feedback. I think. Why do I not hear anything? <laughs> oh, I know. Can why. I take a shot at it? Is it Dermot? Dermot. I think you wrote Dermot. it. There. Yeah, Dermot? you're. You're. Don't use my cheat. No. Dermot. Dear, oh, okay. Dear okay. Man. I know. I. I see what the technical problem is. It's called um, operator error. <laughs> okay. Here we go. 
Good day, APG crew. How are you doing? It's uh, Dermot O'Connor here, uh, the guy from last week's feedback with the, uh, I wouldn't say funny, but maybe interesting name. <laughs> it is uh, Dermot, D-I-A-R-M-U-I-D. It is an Irish name. I'm about 100% Irish. I couldn't really get much more Irish if I tried. Um, the uh, English version of my name, if anyone cares, is Dermot, D-E-R-M-O-T. But um, my name is the Irish version, D-I-R-M-U-I-D. I guess if you wanted to spell it out phonetically, it might be something like D-E-A-R-M-E-D, Dermot. Um, Jeff, I think out of all the... APG crew there in Miami last week. You, you got a you got a uh, pretty good pronunciation of it, especially toward the end. So well done on that. <laughs> anyway, uh, I got a nice kick out of you guys mentioning me for sure. And um, what's going on with me? I'm just sitting at home in Dublin uh, for my two days off. Uh, I was working up till yesterday, five days. Four sectors a day, 20 sectors in the week, and about 22 block hours. So the weather was fairly, what would we call it, fairly poor for the last uh, week or so here. We had a lot of, well, we still have a lot of windy days, you know, gusting 40, gusting 45. And uh, we had some snow as well last week, which was always fun in this part of the world because um, I'm just not very well prepared for it. So I think we spent about... Uh, an hour and a half waiting for de-icing, so that was that was always fun. Anyway, that's all for me. Uh, thanks again for mentioning me. And as I said, I'm new to the podcast, so I'm enjoying it. I particularly enjoyed last week's episode, mainly for the fact that I was mentioned in it. <laughs> so keep up the good work, guys, and I'm looking forward to listening in the coming months. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank you, Dermot. And I'm glad that I was the closest. Yay. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Yeah. I got lucky, I think. Um, well, very nice to meet you. And my goodness, uh, what do you say of uh, 20 sectors in five days and 22 something hours? Yeah. Man, he's working Busy. hard. Busy. Damn. Yeah, it. way too hard. I thought I was working hard, but apparently not. All right. Well, nice to have you with us in the uh, APG community, Dermot. All right. Um, Liz wants me to go to, and I agree with her. Um, this uh, piece of audio feedback from Rachel. And unfortunately, as you'll hear in her audio feedback, she um, uh, wanted to hear our answer before today because I think the flight that she's taking is this morning. So sorry, Rachel, but uh, here we go. We're going to address it right now. Good morning, APG crew. My name is Rachel. I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee, just up the road from some of you. I'm a fairly new listener. I found you guys in December, and I love the show. I appreciate what you guys are doing. My question for you this morning surrounds the 737 MAX 8 and MAX 9, which I'm sure you're going to address on your show today. I have a trip booked to Iceland on Saturday morning, and it was booked through a U.S.-based carrier, but the leg from Chicago to Reykjavik was scheduled to be on the 737 MAX 8 with the inbound back to the United States on the MAX 9. My question for you is this. I started thinking about airline partnerships, and although I have full confidence in U.S.-based carriers, I'm curious how we can be assured that the international partners of those carriers meet the same level of safety and performance. 
clearly these are business deals, but is there an assurance through those deals that the international carriers meet a certain standard? I'm certain that none of the U.S.-based carriers would um, intentionally or want to partner with an unsafe um, international partner, but is there a way to assure that they meet the same level of training and safety? Thank you for your feedback. I look forward to talking to you more in the future. Rachel, first of all, we have to say that uh, many of the people listening to your feedback in our live chat room are saying what a, a great accent that you have. They love your voice and your and your accent. And uh, so I just thought I'd throw that out there. Um, yeah, I do too. Yeah. It's very similar yeah. to the local accent in Charlotte if you listen to native Charlotte okay. Yeah, I like it too. Anyway. Um, I've always liked to, well, never mind. Um, so, uh, <laughs> it's a great this, yeah, thank you. Um, the, um, code sharing thing. Yeah. U.S. carriers sometimes, you know, make bad decisions when it comes to like, let's say Acme and Acme Red, you know, coming together. You know. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, but, uh, no, actually, uh, code sharing which is a marketing arrangement in which an airline places its designator code on a flight operated by another airline and sells tickets for that flight. Um, so uh, there is a regulation, um, and I'm sure every country has these sorts of things, before they, they can um, get involved in a code share agreement, uh, the government has to uh, make sure that the airline does its due diligence to uh, conduct a safety audit of its foreign carrier code share partner to ensure that the operations meet acceptable international standards and submit the results of that audit for review by the Federal Aviation Administration. So it's just not like, you know, we can go out there and willy nilly say, you know what, I'm gonna, we're going to partner together. Uh, no, the there are regulations uh, from the FAA that say that you have to, you know, do a lot to ensure that uh, the, the airline that you're partnering partnering with um, does meet at least the standard of your carrier. So, um, and an interesting story regarding that is uh, at Acme. Um, well, no, I'm sorry. It was our sister airline, Delta. Uh, when um, uh, we, uh, they, <laughs> let me try that again. When Delta Airlines back in the, I believe it was the early 90s, uh, ended up establishing a code share agreement with Korean Airlines. Now it's called Korean Air. Um, they uh, at, shortly after that, Korean uh, ended up being involved in some uh, big uh, accidents, uh, especially uh, a couple of its cargo jets crashing within weeks of each other. One in Shanghai and one at Stansted Airport near London. Um, and uh, their their safety record was. Uh, concerning a lot of people, including Delta Airlines. And uh, basically, Delta uh, ended that agreement because they could see that that was not going to be good for, you know, the, the passengers of Delta Airlines um, and, you know, just expecting the same high standards that uh, Delta has. Um, and so in, uh, let's see, around the end of the 90s, early 2000s, uh, a, a former, a, re, a retired Delta Airlines uh, pilot and uh, vice president of flight operations uh, was hired by Korean Air to come over there and run its operations 
And uh, he, his order was to rescue the airline from international disgrace. And what he did was he took a look at the culture there and uh, the, the, especially the training uh, environment and the training program and turned it around. And uh, after Delta was satisfied with the fact that uh, they had really changed their, their culture, uh, and I'm talking about the air, airline uh, cockpit culture, not, not the culture of the country, um, and uh, they really improved their safety record. Then um, Delta reestablished the code share um, agreement. So, I, when you had mentioned this, um, you know, requirement for uh, ensuring safety uh, and quality of code share partners, that I, I remembered this uh, being in the news back uh, in the '90s and early 2000s. So that should make you feel better, I think. Anything to add? Uh, Captain Nick or stuff? I, I know very little about the subject, quite honestly. So it's sort of outside my pay grade, I'm afraid. But that sounds great stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I actually didn't know anything about um, whether there were any requirements. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I obviously, well, I'm not obviously, but I thought the same thing you did, that uh, it was just something that the airlines were, you know, if they want to hang it out there and, and code share or partner with an airline that maybe doesn't have a great safety record, well, then that's on them. But apparently our uh, government regulatory agencies do have some oversight uh, in this. So uh, when Rachel asked the question, I actually learned it myself. But then I thought, oh, yeah, I have a uh, somewhat personal um, – I know a guy that uh, flies for Delta. And he was telling me about this. So, all right. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Are you? Sh- should we keep on going a little bit more? Yeah, sure. Okay. You. So we can knock them off, shall we? Yeah. Um, this is, I think, an interesting question. A lot of people, uh, well, actually, no, this is the first time I've seen this question. Uh, I was thinking it had something to do with educational, um, like a lot of people ask about college degrees and what should I, uh, yes, sure. you know, th- that's what I, looking at the uh, title of this note, that's what I thought it was. Now I remember what this was actually about and we not had this particular question, uh, before, uh, this is, um, from Brian Bradford. Uh, I love your show and have been listening for quite a while. I have what I think might be a somewhat unique set of questions. My wife and I foster children from time to time, which is a wonderful thing to do. Good on you guys. We have three biological children of our own, seven, five, and almost two, and have had many foster children placements. Our current placement came in as a seven or is a 17-year-old who just came to us today. This is significantly outside our typical comfort zone for children, uh, for children we would foster because we've never had any children older than our oldest. One of the major factors in uh, our decision was the fact that she had told her caseworker that she had an interest in aviation and aspires to be a pilot for the United States Air Force. My dad is an avid pilot. He has every rating through his ATP, although he's a physician by profession. Yeah, Dr. Steph. We are blessed to have access to several aircraft, a CFI, CFII, MEI, etc. because of this. My question arises from the fact that she has decided to drop out of high school prior to her placement with us. She is very motivated, and we are working to help her earn her GED, which is a general education degree, I think is what that stands for. Right? Uh, education. Uh, what is GED? I have to look Someone look it up. Okay. I'll look it up. Anyway, uh, that's what, what I think it is, but it might be something else. But anyway, GED, in other words, uh, the equivalent of a degree or something. Yeah, um, equivalent of getting a high school degree, but without actually graduating from a high school. 
Um, after she completes this, does she stand much of a chance of being accepted into the Air Force Academy? Uh, she should, pers- uh, should she pursue a bachelor's degree from another college and try to get a commission later? Or should she focus on pilot training now and then pursue her Air Force dreams? I understand if this doesn't make it on the show, but I would still appreciate any advice you and the crew have. Ah, you made it to the show, Brian. Um, may ATC always give you direct to your destination. Uh, again, that's Brian, a foster parent in Pennsylvania. And General so, education development. Oh, so it's, the D does not stand for a degree. No. General education development. Okay. General education development test. Ah, okay. So uh, I wrote down, I did, I did a little research here and at the, my first reaction was, mm, I don't think it's going to be very easy for her at all if she doesn't have a high school degree. And, uh, and from what I could tell, uh, that is true. And, and even for those of us who went through high school, uh, getting into any of our military academies here in the U S is, is a difficult thing. Um, and, uh, they, so I, this is what I wrote. It might be difficult to get into the U S air force Academy with a GED, the military academies and colleges and universities will assess potential candidates based on their GPA involvement in extracurricular activity involvement and other factors, a whole person approach. Additionally, uh, before she can be considered for appointment to the U.S. Air Force Academy, she must obtain a nomination, which is a very competitive process. And then I'll, I have a link here to the uh, website for, for the uh, U.S. Air Force Academy uh, regarding all this stuff. But uh, basically, um, the nominating categories, a majority of applicants to the academy obtain nominations in the congressional or vice presidential categories. The academy also reserves a select number of cadet appointments for no, uh, nominees in the military-affiliated U.S. territory and international categories to seek nominations. So like a congressional nomination, basically whatever state you're in, Pennsylvania, you have two state senators and then you have a, your local uh, re- representative. And all three of those uh, can be contacted to uh, submit your stepdaughter as a, a, nom- a nomination or a nominee. Um, and I think each of them get five uh, nominees that they can uh, designate every year. Uh, so you can see if there are a lot of people from the state of Pennsylvania that want to go to the Air Force Academy, uh, you have basically 15 slots to get uh, one of those nominations. And it's a very competitive thing. And they also look at um, your prior academic record. And for instance, some of the things that they recommend, uh, completion of the following high school courses, four years of English, four years of math, four years of science, three years of social studies, two years of modern foreign language, and one year of computer study. And in many cases, they recommend that these be advanced courses and maybe even college placement, advanced placement kind of classes that they take in high school. So they're looking, um, it says generally candidates must rank in the top 40% of their high school class. However, the average of recent entering classes is the top 3%. So you can see how wow. competitive this That's is. Very competitive. Um, so I'd say uh, the Air Force Academy is probably not going to be a, 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 a realistic thing. Uh, I mean, I could be wrong. I would still look into it and I would see if you have any connections with your... It's not a reason not to apply. Because right. you never know. Sometimes a compelling story too is uh, that's true. Counts for a lot and motivation and yeah, right. I wouldn't not apply. Very good point. Yeah, don't yeah don't say well we're not going to do it because it's going to be a waste of time because it may not be. Uh, but 
there are plenty of other ways to fly airplanes in the Air Force. And one is one of those that you propose that she goes to a college, gets her degree, and then uh, tries to get her um, uh, commission another way. Uh, For instance, I went to a, a public college, Auburn University. I graduated and I went to officer training school. So, I mean, if I can do it, I'm sure that she can do it as well. Um, and, uh, once you uh, make it through the officer training program, um, and you have the, you know, you've taken some, some tests to see if you have what it takes to be a pilot, then it's possible that she can become a cadet, um, pilot cadet, um, and then go to pilot training and and fly airplanes. And also another way is the guard and reserve. Reserves. I was going to say reserves. Definitely. So plenty of different ways of paths to get there. Um, the last thing that you mentioned as far as focusing on her pilot training right now and then her Air Force dreams, I would say that would be the last choice. Um, that It's more important at this point to work on the college degree um, than uh, doing the flight training because um, to fly in the military, and I think there might still be some exceptions in certain military branches, but at least the Air Force, uh, as far as they're concerned, um, you have to be an officer to be a pilot and to be an officer, you have to have a college degree. So college degree, officer, pilot, that's the order of things. Although so. also look into maybe things like uh, civil air patrol, yeah. um, as a way to at least, um, be talking to, to pilots. And, uh, I know that, um, I don't have all the details. I know some of the uh, folks who listen to our show can give some specific details about what, um, young people who are involved with the civil air patrol get to do in terms of flying, but there are opportunities to at least have a few hours under your belt of yeah. flying time. Absolutely. So. And as Jen says in the chat room, uh, she should get her GED absolutely for sure. Yeah. I mean, yes. that's, yeah. that's the minimum thing. I mean, you can't, if you don't have a call, a high school degree nor a GED, they're going to say, uh, no, sorry, can't do it. So, um, I'm sure other people out there may have, some ideas for your new 17 year old, but, uh, that's the best we can do for you right now. Mm -hmm. All right. What do you think? Time to end it. Nine and 10 would be quick to cover then maybe wrap it up. Okay. Getting more. I agree with that. Okay. Uh, let's see nine. Um, it's an honor to tune into your production weekly. I have fired most of my other aviation podcasts as when I listen to them, I yearn for all your opinions. Yeah. Take that. You other aviation podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we do have a lot of opinions. <laughs> yeah, that's true. A uh, question for the drivers. I travel domestic and international rather frequently. I have a trick which began as rather self-serving, but became a fun habit when I fly. I make sure to have an entire bag of Starburst candies as they are wrapped independently and hand them out to the cabin crew from the moment I board. That really is bugging me. Still having your Apple News? uh... Yeah, I don't know how to turn it off. I'm going to have to, somebody tell me how to turn off the stupid Apple News. I I don't Uh, know. Notification thing. I do not like it, Apple. Stop it. Okay. Um, Okay. I make sure to have an entire bag of Starburst candies as they are wrapped independently and hand them out to the cabin crew from the moment I board and dole them out liberally throughout the duration of the flight. The thankful smiles of the crew are enough for me. However, 
An adult beverage or two slid my way is also an appreciated benefit. Recently, I received a card from the captain on a flight from Denver to Portland, which I have attached here. I realized that taking care of the cabin crew is appreciated, but I have certainly neglected the captains and the first officers. Is there anything recommended that I could provide the drivers? I recognize the possible safety issue of receiving something from a passenger, even if it is good-natured. I hope to have a meetup soon when I'm stateside, as I'm stuck in Saudi Arabia, and that would be a long haul for the Acme Mad Dogs. Oh, yeah, sure would. And this is, uh, again, Ryan. And uh, I think, uh, Nick, what's your favorite scotch? Well, actually, I don't really have one. I, I drink so many. But uh, uh, if someone was to buy me some, some Johnny Walker Blue Label would be very nice. It's about 250 quid a bottle. Okay. And it's <laughs> so nice. you're looking for those, you're appealing to those wealthy passengers. <laughs> it's, it's hermetically sealed, right? So there's no there's no danger <laughs> of, of, of tampering or anything else. And yeah, I... Uh, I don't know if I have any suggestions for, uh, you know, we appreciate, uh, you know, the same sorts of things that the cabin crew does, I guess. I have done this before. Um, and it actually only works in certain places in certain instances, um, where I'm on a flight that has a stop, but I continue on with the same crew. If I'm allowed off the plane and I'm going to get myself something to eat, I will often ask if I can pick up anything from the nearest establishment in the terminal that I can get to and back in time that used to work very well for pot bellies at Midway airport. Um, Are you talking about the cabin crew or cabin crew? Well, cabin crew or pot. When you referred to pot bellies. Oh, pot bellies. (laughs) (laughs) Must be the pilots. Definitely the pilots. Oh wait, you might need to explain what pot bellies is. It's a sandwich company. There you go. Sorry. (laughs) I I did assume that that was universally known and it is certainly not, not even within the United States. So I apologize for that. Um, yeah. Um, but that was always easy enough to do, and it only really works if you have a chance to get off the plane and get back on with the same crew. So oh, that's a good idea. Exactly. I told uh, you okay. know uh, you're you're uh, in in good company, Steph, because I think you remember the story I told you about um, the celebrity that I had on board on one of our flights coming in from uh, Edmonton or Calgary to Salt Lake City, and we had kind of a long uh, sit time uh, before we continued the flight to Los Angeles. And he was going to get off the airplane, but he, and he asked the flight attendants if they if anybody was interested in frozen yogurt. Mm-hmm. So he went out there, and frozen yogurt was all the rage back then. That was like a froyo, yeah. yeah. And so no, it was even before froyo. It was like no, that's like, just frozen yogurt, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. It's also a brand, isn't it? I think it might be a brand. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, so he he came back with a whole tray of uh, little you know cups of frozen yogurt and. You know, uh, that was such a nice thing, especially for, you know, a, 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 a certified celebrity like um, mm-hmm. Tim Conway. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway. Very nice. Um, Gift cards, I think were mentioned in the chat, like just a $5 Dunkin' oh, Donuts or Starbucks gift card. Or that something happened once it. I was going into Memphis. I still remember it. I was standing at the door because I made it when I was making my PA, I said that uh, something about, you know, tips are appreciated. And I was just joking around. And as I was standing by the door, I think everybody understood that. And this guy walks up to me and it was around Christmas time and he hands me this card and uh, it was a Starbucks card. And he goes, oh, here we go. And I said, oh, I was, I was just kidding. And he goes, no, I don't drink coffee and uh, I don't know what to do with this. So here. And went, oh, there you thanks. Go. And it was $20 on that gift card. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> so that was my one and only tip. Um, that is. Money. Uh, five Ma- coffees. Masha Starbucks. says, uh, you know, money is always accepted. Uh, is it? No, I'm just kidding. 
that would be kind of. I think a whole tray of donuts would be the best Ooh, idea. Ooh, that does sound good. Yeah. Yeah. Baked goods. Something like that. All right. Uh, very good. I hope that helps, Ryan. But that's a, that's a cool thing to do. A lot of uh, frequent flyers know the know those tricks, like chocolates and um, starbur- starburst candies, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's end with uh, 10. Gus. Uh, hello, APG crew. While listening to your discussions regarding pilot aptitude on APG 363, I immediately thought of a U.S. Air Force pilot training patch from a fellow class of mine at Euronato Joint Jet Pilot Training. The patch references the old instructor saying, quote, with enough bananas, you can teach a monkey to fly. <laughs> and uh, so the patch here, uh, which we'll again include in the show notes, is uh, and this, uh, patches, you know, we wear them on our uniform, our flight suit uh, arms, uh, shoulders, whatever you call that. The upper shoulder, upper arm. What is that, Steph? This part right here. Your upper arm. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know all those technical terms. Upper arm. Gosh. Your deltoid. Yeah. Over your deltoid muscle. Yeah, that's it. Um, and uh, it has uh, a big giant banana, a, a T37. Prominently featured, yes. A T37 and a T3. No, is that a T3? No, that must be the um, the beach jet. Um no. I got a patch like that from the banana bar in Amsterdam. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's don't talk about that. Let's don't talk about the is. banana bar in Amsterdam. <laughs> 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 I want to keep this a family show. <laughs> okay. Uh, so at the very bottom it says with enough bananas. Uh, so very cool. Again, uh, you can check it out yourself by uh, heading over to the show notes for this today's show. And with that. Um, show notes can be found. You're asking, where can I find those, Jeff? You can find them on airlinepilotguy.com, the specific uh, episode 363. And you can actually listen to the show that way as well by hitting the little play button or uh, whatever. But you can definitely find the show notes there with links to all this good stuff and uh, a lot of other things there on the Airline Pilot Guy webpage. And we also have apps for your smartphones, uh, whether they be iOS or Android-based. And uh, we're also on social media. Head on over to Twitter.com using the handle at APGCrew. You can uh, get in touch with us there. You can find our individual Twitter information should you want to just... Annoy Captain Nick by himself. Um, you can also head over to. Uh, you're, you're welcome. Uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Um, lots of good community interaction going on there. Uh, people sharing aviation related articles, information about uh, the show itself, and of course, sometimes some meetup information. And for more related to that, I'll pass it over to Hello. APG listeners. Please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1, Hotel India, 1-1, Echo 1, and see you in Slack.
Thanks, Halal, for that. And a big round of applause and thank you to our producer, Miss Liz. Well done, Yay, thank you very much. Great work, as always. And until next time, wishing all of you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Cheerio. Wow. Good day.